This episode is supported by Dove. Narrow beauty standards have permeated our feeds, perpetuating beauty ideals that can't be achieved in real life, impacting girls' self-esteem. To help combat this, the Dove Self-Esteem Project is taking action to support the next generation so they can have a positive experience on social media by providing free resources to parents, mentors, and educators. Dove is tackling the issue of digital distortion with Reverse Selfie, a film rooted in new research on body confidence from the Dove Self-Esteem Project. They're also providing a new confidence kit so that kids and parents can navigate social media with confidence and have a more positive experience online. So head on over to dove.com slash the selfie talk to download the new confidence kit and helpful tips to have the selfie talk today. But Alex. Yeah, Shane. Let's begin this episode. Let's do it. Hello, everybody. I'm Alex, and I'm here with my husband, Shane. The babies are in bed, the cat is in her room, and we are so glad that you could join us for happy hour on this Family Tree Podcast, episode 103. Why are you smiling so much? (laughs) Is it because your nose is making your voice sound weird? Are you sick? Shane, okay. I can barely hear myself speak because my I ears... I wish I couldn't. Get out of here. My ears are so plugged. Like, I, I cannot hear anything out of my left ear. It is just plugged. And, yeah, my nose is a little bit stuffy. I think I got a sinus a sinus infection. You kind of sound like Woody Allen right now. Thanks. Thanks. You're making me feel really confident before we record for an hour. <laughs> hey, say what you will about Woody, but he's got a great soothing voice. What? (laughs) Anyhow, Shane, as per the usual, we have amazing guests lined up. We've got a great episode for everybody. So we are so happy that you are here to listen. First up, we have Lynn from the Mixed Mama Life. And with Lynn, we talk about the importance of amplifying mixed race families, her experience growing up, as well as her experience as a mother, and how she plans on integrating different cultures into her daughter's life. It's a really fascinating episode. Uh, Lynn is Indigenous and her husband is Jamaican. So this is, you know, a lot of very different cultures kind of coming into She's also French. And we just talk about what that looks like in, you know, when you're growing up. And then again, when you're trying to raise the next generation. Next up, we have a woman that I made friends with at a pool party. And I love this, but we have Erin Pepler. Always working at these pool parties, aren't you, Alex? <laughs> Schmoozing. She is the author of the soon-to-be-released Send Me Into the Woods Alone essays on motherhood. So with Erin, I mean, we get into everything. She was wonderful to talk to, but we talk about the importance of validation as a mother, expectations placed on moms, pitfalls of online mommy culture. And I mean, there's so many topics in between that, but the conversation here just really flows and it gives you a great idea of what Aaron's essays will be like. And I I, I really love the conversation. What? (laughs) Do you need to blow your nose? No, I don't. I don't have anything to blow out of there. It's just like it's so far up, Shane, in my brain. Wow. So if you went like this with the nostril and this, nothing would come out. I don't know. Maybe. Try it. There's stuff in there. (laughs) You don't want to try to get it out? All right. Give me a boogie wipe. We have the baby boogie wipes. (laughs) Is that what they're called? (laughs) Yeah, they're called boogie. See that purple package? Do you want to grab me one? Okay. So we have these. I highly. Okay. Is this an ad read? Recommendation alert, not an ad read. But we have these products. Does it say, it's just boogie wipes, right? I'm going to read you guys what it says. Yeah, so they're boogie wipes. They're natural saline wipes for stuffy noses. This one smells like grapes and it's awesome. Hold on. Not that much. Your voice sounds better already. 
Does it? Yeah. Okay, cool. So Amazing. let's let's talk about what we're drinking now. Let's as talk. <laughs> we're talking <laughs> about what's about coming out of your nose, but let's talk about what's going into our mouth. Well, Shane, first off, cheers went Oh, went special tonight with the watermelon seed lip sour, a classic fave. I think we've only made it like maybe twice before. But for those listening, this is one of the best ones. It's amazing. So it's a non-alcoholic cocktail made with seed lip garden 108, basil and watermelon shrub, which is like, it sounds complicated, but it is actually quite easy and you just make it the night before and then you get to make tasty cocktails with it. And then a little dash of egg whites. Wow. Yeah. I'm not, I don't know if I would like to know that before I drank it. Well, you know that little foam that's sitting on top? That's the egg white, Shane. Yeah, it's back, the nasally, but I won't focus on it. <laughs> I won't. Fo- it sounded like you said phone instead of foam, but you know what? Who cares? I want to ask you about your week. Oh. Now, this was the first full week back to work. As I said last on last week's episode, I said next week is going to be better because it's going to be our full week. We're going to get back into routine. Yeah. Was it better? In some ways, yes. And I and I think that this is how life goes. You know, it's like you have a really tough week and you're like, it's okay, next week's going to be easier. And then, yeah, it's. I'm sure it's going to be easier in some ways, but then it might be more difficult in some ways. And, you know, I think that when this happens, because life is just hectic. Everything is so hectic, Shane. Mm-hmm. Like, we do so much. You do so much. I do so much. You and I are constantly going and just constantly moving our brains. It was more of a yes or no thing. <laughs> no, Alex. listen, because I'm trying to teach you a lesson here, okay? Oh. Yes. So because our brains are just so constantly moving and you and I are just like physically going all the time too, we can't just... And, you know, I, I actually, I, I don't want to say we can't say this because I get a lot of relief in saying, oh, next week will be easier. I do enjoy saying that and hearing it. But next week is always going to have its own challenges and it's always going to be tough to a degree. And you and I, and I, I really want you to to start doing this within yourself. Seize the day, live in the moment. No, <laughs> but just just appreciate the good in each week and the good in each day, in each hour. Like whenever you're having a hard day, try to find something good that has happened that you can focus on, reflect on at the end of the day, just so that you don't go to sleep feeling like, oh my God, what a crappy day. Like find one thing. And I I feel like you can get bummed out when things are super overwhelming for us or just fast paced or whatever. And, uh, like you're so used to it, it's, it's our life. But I just, I just think it's so important to always find the good things that are also happening. No way. Like I, the, <laughs> no. I, I know you're thinking that because I was bummed out for a brief period today. But that bummed out period isn't because I'm like, oh, this is so hard or whatever. It's because you. I, I had a topic. I was. I'll bring it up now. But I called my topic delaying the truth. My wife, the liar. <laughs> Now, this is because you have this procrastination technique where something very, to me, it's fairly innocuous. I don't care if you ding the car, Alex. I don't care if your computer gets ruined. However, if let's say for some reason I had to shoot a car commercial without a car. It's a DIY commercial, low budget, and we have to use my car. 
the day I'm leaving, you said, oh, I dinged the car a month ago. Ooh, I, I was so embarrassed to tell you and I thought you'd be mad. Don't tell me on the day I have to shoot the commercial. Now, this is a hypothetical. It didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But you do things like this. In, in a realistic sense, you had ruined this laptop we had purchased for you recently. Right. There was a coffee incident. I didn't know about it. But this happened last week and we needed your laptop today. Well, yeah, it happened like three days ago. Okay. I didn't know how to handle it because it wasn't me. A student did it. A student knocked over my coffee into my computer. And then he goes to pick it up and he put his hands all over my coffee cup. And I was like, ah, you've done enough. Don't put your COVID hands on my coffee cup. And then it was such a mess. Do you think there's a world where I get upset that you've ruined your laptop? No, but I was. You're actually so good at handling things like that. Way better than me, obviously. Like, but why not tell me, the because, understanding guy who doesn't well, give an ass? Because ideally, I wanted to go fix it like on Monday after school because it, like three of my schools are Best Buys like right across the street. So I wanted to ideally have it fixed after school and then bring it home and be like, oh, my computer got screwed up, but now it is fixed and all is okay. I don't okay. like that. I don't like that mentality, <laughs> this know. sneaky fixes. I wouldn't like it with you either. Tell, if, me, tell me right away. Tell me everything. I... I'm always telling you things that happen, getting you prepared. I know. Today, we're we're driving around trying to kill time because we're looking for fireplaces or whatever. We're trying to renovate our home to some extent. And every place is closed. So we have a lot of an abundance of time. And you're like, if only there was something we could do, what what should we do? We're passing best buys left and right, repair computer repair centers. But since you don't want to tell me, you go, oh, let's go to Toys R Us. And we end up just buying going to Toys R Us, cruising it for an hour and buying Lucy a My Little Pony toy, which by the way, great. Toys fun. R Us, it's awesome to see Lucy's eyes light up, et cetera. But when we get back from that trip, uh -huh. we put the kids to bed and then it's time for us to shoot our TikToks, which has become a business. It's become a business. But we only have two hours. If we're lucky, we have three hours a weekend to run yeah. this business and get all of our TikToks for the week done. So it is mm -hmm. fast paced. Kids are in bed. Okay, let's let's shoot the first skit. Let's look at the, the script. Oh, I didn't want to tell you my computer is ruined. I don't have my other computer charged, my other laptop. We got to boot that thing up, bring it up. There's all these passwords on my other thing. It's a work computer. Why not just tell me last week? And we could have repaired the I laptop know. at the time. So if you are equating me, my bad mood today into saying that, oh, it's because Shane's looking at, he has the weight of the world on his shoulders and he's no. thinking of all these things. No, and you are only bringing this up because I wasn't in the greatest mood it's today <laughs> because you drained my energy from this and we only got two, count them, one, two TikToks recorded. I know, I know. When normally we could do six or seven in that Not, time. not in I'm one telling day. You, yes. Shane, we've only done seven TikToks in one day when Roseanne we was here. Eight. We did eight. Well, there you go. We had a babysitter could we and we were doing four? it. We were doing it for. Could we have done four? We could have done four. We could not have done more than four. We could have done less four. Done today. Well, we'll do extra tomorrow. It's not the point of my story. The I point know of, the point, the point of your of story. All the philosophizing at the beginning. Shame. I say, can you please just from now on tell me things as they happen? Yes, one hundred percent. Especially if it's. I don't know. I, I dropped my phone in the toilet. Whatever thing you do, 
I'm not going to get upset <laughs> unless I need your phone and it's like an emergency. And no, then you I tell me it, it look, doesn't work. Look, I get it. And I, I should because I would be weirded out if you didn't tell me. It. I'd just be like, why, why didn't you say something? It's weird that you didn't say something. I get it totally. But I do think that in, I mean... I'm, you're probably, I was going to say correct me if I'm wrong, but you're probably going to correct me because I'm probably wrong here. But I think that sometimes you can wish for the next moment and the current moment to be over sometimes. And I'm just saying to, I think everybody needs to enjoy the moments more and appreciate more. So when all the kids are screaming, I'm trying to do a report for work or a write-up. <laughs> And I don't, I don't know, you're doing something in the other room and everything's just overwhelming. I'm supposed to somehow appreciate that moment? In the day, I mean, you don't have to appreciate that specific moment, but like in the day, if, you know, find something that you could be appreciative for or that, when you, it's that done, you enjoyed. When it's over. Yeah, I know. But something like something that happens, like don't let little things go unnoticed, like little happy things go unnoticed and like try to reflect back on them. So you actually remember them. And then you remember the general period. I do. If in the middle of that period, let's say someone went out and got Lou 10 Timbits, I'll eat one and I'll be like, <laughs> that was nice. In the middle of all that stress, I got a one minute <laughs> reprieve when I shoved that Timbit in my mouth and I got that dopamine hit and the little bit of sugar boost for the next five minutes. I, I I do appreciate that. And at the end of a hard week, I feel better than at the end of a week that wasn't that hard because oh, I too. feel like I accomplished a lot and I feel like I deserve, you know, whatever. This week yeah. was somewhat easier and I didn't feel as deserving. And we had this date night that got a little out oh, of hand. Wow. We had so much fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have to figure out these date nights because now they're actually sprawling out into the streets where they used to be contained into our home. But uh, so staying up a little later, we're staying up a little later. We're getting a little fancier with our cocktails. Like we're getting sugary cocktails. Whereas at home we'd have wine and like, you know, whiskey on the rocks. Yeah, so you or don't something. feel as great the next day. Also, there's more things to look at when you're out. So for instance, we bumped into a friend who we thought was dating someone else and then they were with someone else yes. and we ended up just kind of spying on them at the bar because <laughs> and i'm like texting my friends i'm like is this person still with this person they're like they're not but no one's supposed to know i'm like well i know because they're with someone else and then they're being handsy in public yeah, we're bumping into like your members of your family who have interesting dates that they're on and so things are happening that are keeping us out which inevitably leads to us having that extra drink which inevitably leads to us waking up from feeling not as good and it's throwing our weeks out of orbit come thursday yes. or friday so we have to make date night rules now that we're out in public because <laughs> yeah i, I don't i don't want my thursday fridays to be hurt no, and it takes two days now to recover, which sucks. Is yeah. that an age thing? Like we're not it's not like we're partying that hard yet. Well, I think it's it's a lot to do with the times we wake up because when yeah. we were younger, we could sleep until noon. Mm-hmm. Now we're up at six and no matter what, we're up early. So it feels like, oh, I'm so lethargic. Oh man, yeah. I'm getting old. Haha, I'm in my thirties. Really, I think that has very little to do with it and a lot's just the four sleep deprivation we're in through having children. I went to bed so early at the end of our last date night. So on the Thursday, like I was – Shane, have I ever like really happily, unless I've been very sick, gone to bed before you? 
No, you like to go to bed at the same time. I like to go to bed at the mm-hmm. same time. I'm not the cool guy in the relationship who's just going to bed at the same time. I like to be in bed with you at the same time. It feels like the relationship's not as close for some reason. Yeah, if we're like bed at different times, I, I, there's something weird about it to me too. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like it. I like, don't know if that's a normal thing or just us. I think I think it's, I know. I I'm have a codependent some, person. Yeah, but I have some friends who are like us and like they always go to bed at the same time, even if like us, one person's like awake and on their iPad or whatever and the other one's sleeping. But then I have a lot of people who it's like, they and their spouse to have never had the same bedtime. <laughs> but honestly, I can't I can't comprehend that because I just feel so lonely in bed because I love that end of day snuggle talk in the snuggle. And it's like even if you're still awake listening to podcasts and I'm snoring beside you, there's just something comforting about it, you know? Do you know what I used to like a lot that doesn't happen anymore? Oh, back to goals? Yeah. <laughs> I've been so tired. When No, but this has stopped for a long time. And you, no, you, you used to be tired like two years ago. Yeah, different tired. Different tired. Because when we started this relationship, you you had this, it was almost under the guise that you like to perform all these back scratches. I do like to Why are you perform? looking at me like I'm Just, out of my mind? Your, your lingo is hilarious. I do like to, as you say, perform back scratches. <laughs> What do you call it? Just scratching backs? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you acted like you scratched backs all the time. And then it turns out (laughs) that you're the one who likes to receive back scratches, back massages, head massages, foot massages. Okay, okay, listen. You, yeah, I guess it's like it should, to be equal, I should do way more because you did so much in the beginning. It's just that wasn't the relationship I thought I was getting into. All right, dingus, you give me a foot rub tonight, I will give you a back rub tonight in bed. No, you won't. Not a rub, but a tickle. Like, I'm not, I won't give you a massage, but I'll give you a, a, a good tickle. Get out of here. Okay. I will. Wait, okay. you don't want to swap tickles? <laughs> no, I want to be the one who's just scratched every night and it's obligatory. We're not doing tradesies for anything. Well, I want, I want a foot massage. And you could do that easily while we're watching our little tennis show later. Alex. I'm talking. It's, it's not about what you want. Okay. I don't care. I'm. I'm making. Haven't we talked about on this podcast recently? Making your needs and your desires, communicating that better, and how I'm trying to do that yeah, better. Yeah, but if, if this is my topic section, you can't just steal the topic section. Well, that's what's happening. So this is my topic. Then your next topic could be about what you want, but. <laughs> You can't just like, is it called bogarting? Remember, it's like, I'm like dating myself here, but it's like from Clueless or some term they used to use. Don't bogart that topic, my friend. Yeah. Okay, fine. It's about you. You get what you want. I want to talk about (laughs) us getting what we want in terms of renovations of a house. Exhausting. And what's better here? This is a real question. I want a real answer from you. Okay. So anytime, anyone who's a homeowner, you pretty much know any renovation, it feels like it's a minimum 10 grand. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I want to move that light fixture. A guy will come in and you'll be like, oh, that'll be oh, a couple hundred. And he's like, 10 grand. <laughs> yeah. I want to change this in the kitchen, 10 grand. So it's what's better to have the house of your dreams and have zero money or wait till you have accrued all the money, but then the kids are basically off to college and this wonderful house that you wanted to plan you, you never really lived in it because you yeah. didn't. So is it better to be like have zero in the bank, but a beautiful home or I, wait till the kids are 16 or whatever? 
I think, and of course this differs based on your own situation, but for where we are, I think there needs to be a happy medium. I think we need to find an amount that we're comfortable with spending while still having some of the bank just for safety's sake, whatever, and do that because I do want to, like you and I, we're in this home that we really love and I, I want to enjoy it and I want to make it the most livable because there are some things that need to be done. And we can't even figure out how to get a fireplace in this guys, place. Guys, oh, and we are like ready to throw money at this stupid problem. Like we are, we're walking into places with our checkbook out essentially and just saying like somebody give us a fireplace yet nobody is yeah, able they, to do they, it. They come in the house, they go, oh, it can't be done. The, the flu. No, what's that part called? The, the, the flu. Yeah. F-L-U-E. Okay, stop saying flu. <laughs> <laughs> the part, it's not deep enough though, this. Okay, okay, It's called okay. something else. So there's like a slope. So like the depth yes, of our fireplace slope. slopes up, but they all slope up from what I've learned. However, this one slopes up quite severely. And then the flu uh. is like not <laughs> nearly big enough something. But I, I told the lady today, I was like, look, let's get a, a brick mason in. I said, we're going to get a brick guy in and he's going to make it bigger. And uh, then we're going to have the choice of any fireplace. And she goes, that's not really done. And I said, it's not really done. She goes, no, it's not done. And I said, but can it be done? She goes, I suppose so, but it isn't. And I was like, <laughs> well, we want to make it done, The reason lady. it's not done because, okay, so this project started as we, we wanted to get an electric fireplace. I realized I didn't know what an electric fireplace was. Turns out it's not real fire. It's just like an LED screen that's displaying fire. Mm-hmm. And if they if there is heat coming out of it, it's coming out from like another like hidden source that's like mm-hmm. fake. I thought electric fireplaces were this sounds dumb, I guess, but electric fire? I kind of thought that. I thought it was too, like though, electricity babe. flames or something. Yeah, I thought it was too. I yeah, we were so totally it started because at first we were like, oh, let's get an electric thing. You looked it up; it was a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, I was like, okay, yeah, let's spend it. Then then we gets up to the gas fireplace. It's like it could be two thousand. Turns out this is going to cost us a lot of money, it's- and we're like, just to get the hole big enough to get the fireplace in there, that's going to be like five grand. Yeah, no, this is it's looking like a seven eight grand job to be able to actually make this happen. But this has been yeah, again, I wish. It's Shane, it's something that we've been looking at for five years, really wanting every single night. I am not exaggerating, folks. Every single night when Shane and I are in here, we look at the hole in our freaking wall where an old school fireplace is and we say, wouldn't it be nice to have a gas fireplace there? And then we just kind of look at it and get sad and then a bat will fly through. Next week we'll have enough money. Oh, (laughs) yeah, and a bat. (laughs) As we were gazing into our hole, (laughs) that sounds weird, but it's true. A bat flew out of it one night. (laughs) Like inches above our heads. Shane ran away screeching and crying. And then I had to pull things together and lead him outside. You opened a door and the bat flew out. He was a cute bat. Do you remember him? Oh, I do not like that. Oh, Shane, he was sitting on the, like when our door was open, he was kind of sitting on the edge of it. And I got up a little bit close and you could just see his tiny little bat hands and his furry little body. He was very adorable. You got that close to him? No, like from maybe from where I'm sitting now. It's like five feet. Terrifying. Uh, That's all I have. No, that's pretty good. I like it. We sorted through some things, found Mm -hmm. answers. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I've gone through everything. My wife's a liar. Now, who's first up here? All right. So first up, we have the mixed mama life. We have Lynn, and 
again, this is a great talk. So yeah, listen to it. Well said. But before we get to Lynn, let's let everyone know who we are supported by. We are supported by Mini Miosh, a premium, organic, ethically made, and sustainable kids and babies clothing company founded and created in Toronto. Mini Miosh believes in quality over quantity, and they make the best basics that you can get your hands on for your littles. I'm talking about fashionable wardrobe staples that are soft, comfy, and like so timeless, and they can be passed from kid to kid regardless of gender. We love it. Lou loves it. Betty doesn't even have any brain cells and she loves it. Oh, they're obsessed. They're obsessed just because everything looks great and it feels great. She will have brain cells. It's just because she's young. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> no, but she I, loves it. She knows fashion even with her limited abilities. It's quite a skill, actually. And Mini Miosh uses organic cotton fabrics that are knit and dyed locally using GOTS certified organic cotton and low impact non-toxic dyes. They're on a mission to leave the planet better off for our little ones than when they arrived on it. And they believe that every little bit counts. It does. It does. And you can find the company online at minimiosh.com or at minimiosh on Instagram and Facebook. And if you use the promo code thisfamilytree15, you are getting 15% off your entire order. This is available in Canada and in the US. Again, that is minimiosh.com and thisfamilytree15. I promise if you go to that website, you are putting something in the cart. But we are also supported by... Willow. Shane, did you know that many Canadian school children are consuming three times more sugar than is recommended on a daily basis? Well, yes, only because I read a fact sheet that said that. Well, and, and the fact sheet is true, and I found it I so, hope so. Di- <laughs> it's a fact sheet. <laughs> but I found it difficult to find a daytime treat for Lucy because of that. And I am so happy that we now have Wheelow in our lives because these are school safe snack bars with 50% less sugar. Then the average granola bar at only three grams per bar. That's huge. And Lucy is like a, I don't know, private eye detective Columbo when it comes to eating healthy stuff that's supposed to taste good, but it doesn't really to her. She will eat these bars. She would eat them for every meal if she could. Oh, it's true. The taste is kid approved. Like Lucy is obsessed. And to be quite honest, I'm obsessed too. Not only do they taste great, but the bars are a source of fiber. They contain immunity boosting probiotics. They're non-GMO verified and they don't contain anything artificial. Plus, Wheelow is a primarily female-founded and Canadian company. Love supporting that. Yeah, I don't know if I'm obsessed with them, but I do love them a lot. Ooh. Like, I can hold back when I need to, you know? See, I've been stealing them out of her box and taking them to I school know, with me. I know, and it's me. not right. It's not right. <laughs> I'm just saying I can restrain myself. Well, if you want to find Wheelow in many major retailers, you definitely can do that, but we suggest you buy them online at ourwheelow.com because then you can use our promo code and get 20% off your order. So use this family tree 20 at ourwheelow.com to get 20% off. Again, that is this family tree 20 and ourwheelow.com. And you can always go to Alex's Instagram and she has a thing where you can click it and it makes it easier in case you're wondering or on this website description sheet. But now let's get to our interview with Lynn. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm very good. I'm so happy that you're here. Yeah. Thanks for having and me. I, I'm so happy we were able to organize it so quickly, too. That was amazing. <laughs> that never Which happens. is good because, yeah, the less I think about it, the better. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. That's like, that's very much like me. That's how I operate. If you throw me into something, I will do like mentally, I will fare way better than if I have a long time to prepare. Yeah. Way long. But you are a podcast host. 
I am uh, brand new and I do not have the following that you have. <laughs> well, so I this didn't. Yeah, you know, this is kind of like a, I made it mom moment, but <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, I, I am. I have a little podcast going on and it's funny because I see you with your setup and I just got a microphone <laughs> not long ago. So I started my podcast literally talking on my phone, sometimes in my car just yeah no way yeah no okay so lynn you are the mixed mama life and is your podcast does it have the same name it's yeah so it's called hyphenated and then hyphenated the mixed mama life so what's what's the hyphenated about so it's all about being mixed so mixed identity and a lot of people have that hyphen they'll say i'm you know something hyphen something you know add in the race culture whatever and it's all about living kind of with that hyphenation a lot of people will say oh are you half that are you quarter are you all these things and it's like no they can just be mixed right so it's kind of like a play on words with that um when I came up with the name and it wasn't picked so (laughs) no I well that's key (laughs) that's key for picking a name but no I and I'm really interested to listen to your podcast because I you know we've been i online, I know that your foundation is amplifying mixed families and those experiences. And to you, why does that hold so much significance? Good question. (laughs) So the main reason why I started it is I was five months pregnant Mm -hmm. with our first child. I am an interracial. I I just have to pipe in and say Genevieve is a real cutie. Thank you so much. I agree with you. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So I was five, month, five months pregnant with our first child. And I, I mean, she's our only child, but I'm in an interracial relationship with a Canadian Jamaican. So very like visibly interracial relationship. So he's black. I seem white. I'm white passing, but I am uh, indigenous French mix. So I'm Anishinaabe. And I do identify as Indigenous, but it's hard because people don't really see me that way. People don't treat me that way. A lot of people are surprised when I tell them. Some people guess I'm Italian or something else (laughs) way before (laughs) guessing, you know, that I am Indigenous. And I knew that our daughter would look completely different than Mm -hmm. even both of us, right? She would be even more mixed. And I know what it felt like to grow up mixed and not really know who I am or where I fit in and kind of be in that hyphenated space. So I wanted to kind of spread awareness, kind of create um, a space for other families, whether the parents are mixed or not, if they have mixed kids, if they want to learn about it, you know, if they have some other kids, friends who are mixed, whatever, just to have that space. And the reason also to amplify is because You know, I don't want to be the one just talking about my experience because, Mm -hmm. yeah, I have some, but I'm I'm still very privileged and didn't live the the most the life, sorry, of most even Indigenous people. So, you know, I want to I have the opportunity. I have the means for this podcast and, you know, social media and everything. Why not try to bring other people on and share those experiences? And I I thought, too, it would be way more interesting than just hearing me talk all the time. (laughs) No, and I I want to talk about your life a little bit. You know, you brought that up a couple times there and your childhood. So you said that, you know, you, you didn't really know kind of where to identify. What was your childhood like? Did you 
have indigenous culture and French culture? What did that look like? Yeah, so I was primarily raised French Catholic, went to French school my like, whole life. By French, do you mean like France French or Quebecois French? No, Ontario French. Okay, okay, okay. The, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so there's a lot of French communities up north. So I'm originally from Sturgeon Falls, which is a little town just between like Sudbury and North Bay. So if you know the north a little bit, you'll get an idea of where that is. And it's essentially all like the side of it kind of follows Quebec. So I'm guessing there's a lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, ties between both back in the day when they came and settled. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's not Quebec French. It's not France French. It's its own thing. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a mixture. It's like a slang. People who know the area, when they hear you speak, they know you're from that area. Okay. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's but it's primarily French. Like at home with my parents, I speak French. Schooling was all French up until I got to university. And we would only have like one English class. So it was kind of like French immersion, but the flip. So all my other subjects were in French. So yeah, I was raised, you know, Catholic, French, but my mom is Indigenous and she was also raised French Catholic. And it's interesting because her mom only spoke English and Ojibwe. Interesting. And they they went to French school and their dad was French and, and you know, their mom didn't want to expose them, I guess, or, or have them hear her and her siblings speak Ojibwe because she didn't want them to go to school to, you know, repeat the words or whatever. I mean, we're going back to the 50s, mm-hmm. 60s. So, you know, we all, we all know that era now how it was. So, I mean, I don't know exactly her intentions. She's not here. I've never asked her like mm-hmm. she's passed away long before me. But I can imagine that those were the reasons she didn't want her kids to maybe maybe be teased or, you know, so, so yeah, and she, I, she probably just wanted them also to do well at school and to, you know, know the language well and just fit in, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's like, it's like subtle assimilation. It's like, even though, you know, you're not being forced anymore to go to residential schools and abandon your language and not take part in your customs. There's a fear that if you do, then you you might be punished or held back or discriminated against in some way. So it's probably like wanting assimilation for your family out of a place of fear and care as and love as odd as that is for them, right? Yeah. And like even the fact that like my grandmother, you know, married, Uh, a white Frenchman, right? And they lived off the reserve. And we have like three reservations, like really close to where I grew up. And so they were in town, he had a couple different jobs. At one point, he was bartending. And like, she couldn't even go to the bar where he was bartending. Oh, wow. So like, all these things, right, are happening around, like, just normal life. Mm -hmm. And it was literally normal life for them which is so weird to me. <laughs> yeah. So is there a, you said there are three reservations, but is there a large Indigenous community like where you grew up? And were, were you associated with that in any way? Yeah. So my mom did her best because without really knowing any of her culture, really, her language, like really nothing. Her mom passed away like, and kind of that was it like even though she is close with her family and her siblings and all that like it's it I 
I guess I saw firsthand or I'm living firsthand how fast a culture language and everything can just be lost. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And so she did her best. She would bring me to powwows because we would have some in the areas and, you know, try to kind of show me <laughs> without really knowing herself, yeah. what kind of what she was doing in a way. Cause I think she was learning as she went too. But it wasn't until I went to university, really, that I was exposed to not not exposed to um, reservation or indigenous people, but exposed to really what my culture was and the history of it and what really happened. Because, you know, growing up, I was getting tidbits Mm -hmm. and I would have indigenous friends, but it's not like we were talking about like, hey, like, are you drumming? Do you know your language? Like, you know, it wasn't that we were all just going to the same schools and it was what it was. So it, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird kind of thing. It's what was it in university that got you in touch with that? And, and where'd you go to university? So I went to Nipissing university, which is in North mm-hmm. Bay. So really close to my community. And it's funny. Cause I went there for volleyball nice. and yeah, but they had a, a whole program on native studies and that's what it was called. And I thought this would be cool to know to a because I'm interested because it's a part of me that I don't know. Plus if I can maybe do something with this later on, even better. Right. And so I took it as my minor and I think I only have like, I should have, I should have did a double major, but it was a lot. It was so much. <laughs> it's so much. Um, but yeah, so I ended up doing it and my, my one professor was actually from my community. So I still see him like when I go to powwows and stuff, like it's pretty interesting how, how I kind of connected a lot of things for me. And the biggest thing though, was just learning like essentially Canada's real history. And did I learn like everything in my university? No, but I learned enough to know that there was a lot more than I needed to learn (laughs) and to learn that, you know, what we teach in school or what we learn in school is definitely not what Canada is, or it's a part of Canada, right. But it's not all of Canada. And so that was like huge for me. Mm-hmm. Another, I'm just going to go back to, yeah. to finish with the other question about being exposed. One thing is, so the reservation where my mother's family is from is about an hour and a half outside of where I grew up. So okay. it's not very far. It's called Dokis First Nations. And I actually have land there now. Oh. And I have a little cabin like off That's the grid. Amazing. Yeah. And I have several of my cousins that also go, uh, aunts and uncles. And so it's kind of like a reclaiming. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. That's really fantastic. And I do, I want to, I have a few things that you said that I want to comment on, but first I, I think that it's so admirable what your mother did by bringing you to powwows, even though she was kind of learning it herself and she wasn't so familiar with it because it can be nerve wracking and it can almost, you know, give you a sense of guilt putting yourself in a situation where you are confronting your own life and your own culture, but yet be a total stranger to it at the same time. So I think yeah. for her to bring you to that is is so admirable because that it takes a lot of courage to put yourself in that position. And, you know, learning about your own history in university, I kind of became obsessed with that myself, uh, with my own history. Like I took a lot of Polish and Russian history in university, uh, that being where my family's from, because, you know, they came over during the war uh, and they were Polish living in Russia and they were persecuted by the Russians. So they came over and like my grandmother would never talk about Stalin. She 
Lennon, like she had so much hate and anger and talking about that time period, which was so transformational for our family because like, I don't know, three quarters of our family got killed and that's why our family is so small. And she would never talk about it. So much like you, like I, I wanted to know more and really immerse myself with that. So it's like, I t- I'm a history and English major, but almost all of my history is like Eastern European stuff just to kind of fill in those gaps, right? Yeah. And, you know, the history that you were like, it's like indigenous studies. I mean, that needs to be compulsory in Canada. Those are our foundations. And today alone, I taught one class in civics on privilege. And we mm. talked about indigenous culture. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, I taught a lesson on colonialism for U.S. history. And it's, wow. you know, the kids are going, well, miss, what does this have to do with anything now? Why do we have to learn about the 13 col- colonies in the U.S.? Like, we're Canadian. We're living in 2021. I said, because the structures that were formed then are still in place now and are still dictating how people are living their lives now. Reses on Canada don't, on Canada, in Canada, don't have clean water. Those structures yeah. were put in place way back then and is still not solved. Yeah. So is this something that you've become interested in, in like an all-encompassing way? Like, I don't, I don't know what you do for work, but is that something that you kind of have applied to every aspect of your life? Um, in a way, yes. So I'm a government worker. So it's, I mean, not, not necessarily, I work in anti-fraud. So, (laughs) but I mean, through work, I've traveled like pretty much all over and not, I think it's more personal for me and it was more for me and then for my daughter, but also, you know, it has to be in every aspect of our life. Like if we want to be better, want to do better, right? If we want better from our government, from, from every aspect of life, which has basically created where we are today, then we all need to, A, learn about what actually happened and how it happened, and then kind of unlearn how we live these days and what we think is normal. Because a lot of the normal, quote unquote, things that are happening day to day is literally systemic racism or medical racism, or, you know, whatever else. So I think, I think I, it can't just be one thing, like, even though Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's not like I'm going to go tell my work that I'm not here because of whatever, but yeah, it it just needs to be everywhere. And whether, whether that means that you, you know, call on a coworker and say, Hey, like, that's, that's not really, you know, that's kind of red flag or <laughs> it's not nice to say that because right. And it, it doesn't mean that you're calling that person racist or that they just, you know, don't know, or they're ignorant. Yes, there is ignorance, but it's, we have to look at it as instead of pointing a finger at that person, we need to look at it as it's a bigger problem. It's society as a whole. So it's not that you are racist. Yes, there are some, but for the most part, people have good intentions. So it's not that you are a racist. It's that the system has created this racism. Mm -hmm. So how can we demand better? What can we do day to day to maybe make that better? And I think awareness, you know, unlearning and relearning, but also just having these conversations, just having it out there. So having more people in media, you know, in podcasts, on social media that are BIPOC, that are of mixed identities, that have a different story to tell, like just that will bring so much awareness and can kind of, you know, 
get the ball rolling on mm-hmm. that change. So, you know, you, you being indigenous and your husband being black, have you gotten, again, being a mixed family, have you experienced racism towards your family for being mixed or discrimination, whether you know, microaggressions, anything like that? Yeah, I won't say like full out racism, mm-hmm. but definitely some micro stuff that I've noticed. One of the first times I went to a big box store that I won't name uh, <laughs> with him uh, where you need a card to get in. Mm. And so we and he he told me about this and he's like, every time I go, I am carded. It doesn't matter like what I dress, who I'm with, whatever. He's like, I'm carded. And I'm like, like, you, like I kind of called him like by carded, like asking to see additional um, no, like just asking to see the card. Oh, yeah, and I'm yeah. like, well, they ask everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, you know, I was kind of like, I don't know. Like, let's see. Right. So we went, we did it a couple times because we go often. And so the first time he walked in front of me and there was two older ladies, white ladies in front of him. They went through, didn't get asked. He got stopped and I went through. I didn't even have a card. I was with him but he was like ahead of me. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like I see now we've tried it another time where we were both together. I was the one that had the card. Cause then eventually I moved in with him and mm. <laughs> we're on the same thing. So now I have a card moving on up in the world. And <laughs> I still use my mom's by the way. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like, okay, well, do you have your card? I'm like, yeah, I got mine. We're good. So I we're going in together And I'm actually on the side where like of the person asking for the card and she looks directly at him and says, where's your card? (laughs) And I'm like, I'm waving and like, hello, (laughs) like (laughs) I'm right here. We're with together. And I'm just like, oh my God. Like, so like little things. Right. Mm -hmm. And whether that person was doing it, you know, because she's racist, I don't know. And I'm not going to say that, but those are maybe unintentional actions or biases that the person doesn't even really realize. No, it's unconscious bias right. that everybody has, like have. so many people. We do. Toward, like, yeah, no. And, and that is what needs to be addressed and what people need to sit there and try to learn their own unconscious bias. Because you might not even, if you're just centering this conversation now, you might not even know the ways in which you are biased until you start trying to be aware of it every day. And you can't really get a handle on it until you start paying attention to, ooh, why did I have that thought in my head? Oh, why did I make that assumption about that person? So yeah. it's something that we need to learn about ourselves. And it's it's not easy. It's a tough road. And it's all about doing that work, right? Mm. And like I I have this thing where it's like I'd rather people do the work and trip while they're trying then not try at all. And it it goes back to like, if you do trip and someone calls you out for something you said, or you did, or I don't know, whatever, maybe something you're promoting or whatever, just try not to take it personally as hard as that is, because I know the, I, I know, cause I was like that. I was mm-hmm. like, what, like, are you calling me a racist? Like I'm not racist <laughs> and you know, all this, but you know what? I have my own biases. We all do. Mm-hmm whether, you know, it's different races or whatever it is, but then to be like, okay, why do I think that way? Is it because of the way I grew up? Is it because of the media that we're exposed to? Mm -hmm. Is it just how, you know, our society is set up? So 
yeah, you're right. Like everybody needs to do that work. Everyone needs to kind of reflect, self-reflect. Yeah. And um, I, I will say too, on calling people out, because we, like Shane and I have dealt with this a little bit recently, and there's a way to do it. There's a way to call people out. You don't need to prove how woke you are or how aware you are of things. Because nobody, nobody, you're not getting a medal. Nobody cares. You're going to seem like a jerk. no one's an expert. No, no. Like you can call somebody out in a way that alerts them to what they're doing, but in a gentle way. Because like you said earlier, most people don't have those intentions. And if they only knew better, then they would be more than happy to change how they speak or how they think, whatever it is. So when people are calling people out, from my perspective, unless it's like an intentional thing and you know you need to lay down the hammer, then you can do it in a way that doesn't make that person feel like an idiot. That, you know, just kind of a, a, a gentle push in the right direction without, without being condescending. Because I think that when people call people out, and this happens a lot online, they do it in such a way that pushes that person even farther away from them and even farther away into some other mindset that does not help the cause. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they they don't want to do the work. Then they get really defensive and then they just try to, you know, try to defend themselves and not really understand where that came from or why that person would have said that or why they maybe were offended. Another thing too is having a mixed baby. So she's still really tiny. She's in her stroller when we're walking. And I know like people just love babies and most people <laughs> just want to see what the baby looks like. But obviously the, I've noticed they look at both of us and then it's like, oh, what does the baby look like? Yeah. Right? So I've noticed that a lot. I mean, people, depending where we are, Sometimes I would feel like before, before a baby, I would feel like people were staring me down or staring him down Mm -hmm. for different reasons. Who knows the actual reasons? And like, I stopped them like, Hey, why were you staring at me? Like, I'm, I'm curious, (laughs) but yeah, now that we have her, it's like, it's all about her and just seeing like what she looks like. And well, she looks damn cute. And I'll say that again, but you know, talking about Genevieve right? Mixed baby. And again, we talk about inequality in Canada and racism in Canada, two of the groups that are discriminated against the most, Indigenous and Black, right? So that's, that's a lot packed on, this tiny, adorable little baby. And what is your hope for Genevieve as she grows? So a lot, a lot of hopes. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, that's a huge part of why I'm here, of why this social, you know, this um, Instagram account, the podcast is one, because I want her to know about her cultures, all of them, the white, the, the indigenous, the Jamaican, whatever else is mixed in there. And I want her to be comfortable with them and comfortable with her enough to know that if she wants to identify as black, she can, because she is. And if she wants to identify as indigenous, if she wants to identify as mixed or whatever that is, then, then that's fine. Mm -hmm. Right. But I want her to know her cultures and in a way not be like me and have to go to university (laughs) to find out, you know, what it's all about. Right. So I'm sure if she wants to, she can, but I mean, um, if she wants to find out even more, but part of this was also like, I'm learning as I'm going through this, I'm learning about, you know, being in an interracial relationship about having an interrelational or interracial, sorry, uh, baby, 
And we're kind of going with the flow. Like I didn't, you know, wake up one day and was like, I'm going to fall in love with a black guy. And then I'm going to figure this out. Right. (laughs) You know, love happens. And it, and it's, it is what it is. And especially with George Floyd and all of that, like I had just moved in, you know, with my partner with, when that all like blew up. So that was a lot because he's going through a lot. I was going through a lot. Like it was like, Oh my goodness. Like it was a lot to navigate. And then I get pregnant and I'm like, okay, I want the world to be better for her. And I want her to be better prepared for the world because as much as I'm hopeful that the world will be better, the only way that it's going to be better is if we raise better children (laughs) and not that we weren't raised well, but just knowing more, right. Mm -hmm. Knowing more about the differences and the cultures and not being afraid of it. Mm -hmm. Cause I think a lot of it is like the, the, the fear of the unknown. So I want her. Yeah. So I want her to know, to know about the black history, the indigenous history, to know that she's going to get asked what she is not you know who are you but what are you right which I hate that but I know that it's gonna happen Mm -hmm. so well absolutely and I I think too like even just thinking about when I was in elementary school it's not it's like what is your background what is your culture and I know people and teachers in school will try to celebrate that in different activities but some kids don't know right you think about kids that are adopted or kids that just aren't in touch with one aspect of their culture and they don't know. So it would be great. Like I, I've tried to think about this for myself and to bring in to my own classrooms. But like how do I broach that with kids who don't know? Because I want them to be able to feel like they can celebrate their culture with me and with the other students who have different cultures. But then sometimes I I don't know how to approach that. And it's, it's confusing. Tricky. I don't know if there's <laughs> a good answer right now. Yeah. You know what? I think that just having like that open space or open environment and for them to feel just comfortable to maybe approach you with whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you are talking about different cultures, if you are talking about, like you said, like the history of Canada and colonialism and all that, I think that just that might be enough to get them to open up about, you know, maybe their story. Mm -hmm. Right. But I mean, at the end of the day, like you said, some kids just might not even know and or just might not want to for whatever reason who knows at home you know if it's something that is celebrated or not absolutely so it's it's tricky yeah for sure that that is a hard spot no it is um there's lots of hard spots in teaching <laughs> yeah. when it comes to dealing with different kids and you want to do it right and you want to make everybody feel so welcome and it, it it is a struggle to be able to do that every day and find inclusive ways in every aspect. But I I do, I am interested in, you know, how you plan on introducing your culture and then the Jamaican culture also to, as as, to Genevieve as a baby, like books, songs, what do you bring in into your parenting? Yeah. So actually bias, the bias box, I think it's called. So they like buy us like BYUS. Yeah, buy us box. Okay, okay. And they have several box every year. So it's only like a couple times a year that they have their boxes. And they uh have so I have the indigenous box and the black box. And in it, you pick your age range. So I have zero to two years. And it's the black box has like two like hard, 
you know, hard books. So like she can yeah. you know, gnaw on them or whatever. <laughs> um, but they're, uh, the authors are black. It's about, it has like black characters and, and the stories aren't necessarily like about slavery no. and, you know, like doom and gloom. It's, it's cute stories about like diversity, about themselves, about, about everyday stuff, but you have, you know, black characters and it's from a black author. Yeah, exactly. And then there's a black doll and there's like cue cards that have like, you know, you learn your ABCs, but it just has like cultural things on the cards. Wait, where did you get and this? Is it online? I can send you the link for it. Yeah, that's amazing. It's on Facebook, Instagram, website. Yeah, that sounds and fantastic. Then, it is. And then indigenous box is the same idea, right? So you have like, and then you it also comes with a, a handbook for like the parents and it explains like where all the stuff comes from, like the authors and all that. But it also explains different activities that you can do for your kids. Like if they're bored between different ages um, and what to do with the cue cards. So like when they're young, you can just like, you know, stick them on the fridge or something and then point at them or whatever. But it's, um, it's cool how it, it literally in the box, it ha- it's like a, a teacher in a box, <laughs> yeah. right? No, that's incredible. Yeah. So I have those. I also, I'm very fortunate that I have friends that are really crafty and awesome. And so I have a friend that made a rattle with like hide and like piece of wood and it's like a turtle rattle and then real moccasins for her. And when she was a lot young, a lot smaller, because right now she is really tall for her age so she's outgrown everything her age but when she was a baby she would fit in the um moss bag so that's a traditional moss bag hold um, on i i don't know what that is but i saw a photo on your instagram it it essentially and this could be a different thing but she was in some like some it looked like a swaddle but it was like colorful on the sides and then like furry Yeah. So yeah, there's different kinds. Like you can make them with whatever material. Usually they were like made out of hide and they would have like literally moss in them. Like that's going way back. Um, And the moss acted as like a perfect diaper and it would, uh, yeah, it would actually prevent diaper rash. It would you know, be like, that's what they would put in the bag. And it's essentially like a swaddle and it has like a, a cord or a string in the front that you tight. So it keeps your baby in tight and your whole baby is in there except for the head. So the head's popped out. And so they're swaddled in there and you can add those moss bags onto a cradle board. And those cradle boards would then be propped up either against uh, like a tree. So if you're gardening or you're outside, or you can put them on your back. Right. And then you carry them around. I had a so doll. That was the, I, I had an yeah. indigenous doll with a baby. I love it. She she was carrying the baby on her back, like on like a board type thing. And I never knew what it was. I just, my mom, uh, she majored in in Native Studies, it was called at the time. Hmm. So she, and this is another conversation I want to have with you towards the end, whether this is, all of this is okay or not. But we had a lot of Indigenous crafts and music and everything in our house growing up. But a moss bag. I think that's. I think that's awesome. And yeah, so the the cradle board, like the wooden part, it was actually called Tikanagan. 
So that's the, the name for it. And yeah, so I was fortunate enough that my cousin, when she had her baby, someone from the community made it handmade for her. And, and usually these are passed down. So she passed it down to me when I was pregnant and we'll wait for the next one, uh, for the next person, not meaning I'm going to have another one, but (laughs) for the next person in the family or friend that I can pass it down to as well. All right, Lynn, we're going to take a quick break and let our listeners know who we're supported by. We're supported by Hello Bello. Being a parent is hard, like really hard. So when you go to get diapers to prevent the next eventual blowout, buying a diaper that's absorbent and soft without spending fortune shouldn't be just as tough. Co-founded by Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard, Hello Bello is built on the simple idea that all babies deserve the best, which is why they offer premium baby products at affordable prices. Well, we don't know if all babies deserve the best, but definitely your child does. If you're listening, right. There's some bad babies out there that you and I both know deserve nothing. Well, Shane, whether a baby is inherently bad or not is a question for another day. You're right. You're right. In the meantime, they do deserve the best. And you can start that by getting the Hello Bello diaper bundling service. This service lets you choose from over 20 fun different rotating designs of diapers and like they're seasonal, they're adorable. And each bundle comes with seven packs of diapers, four packs of plant-based wipes, and even one full-size product freebie with your first order. Plus, you get 15% off any of the add-ons like the bubble bath, the wipes, diaper rash cream, the detangler. They, they literally have everything. Well, 15% sounds like a lot until you get to the end here when we talk about 30%. Oh, you're giving it up early. I am. But to get Hello Bello super soft, super absorbent, and super affordable diapers delivered right to your door, go to hellobello.ca and use the promo code ThisFamilyTree30 for 30% off your diaper bundle order. That is a huge bang for your buck and a lot of potential blowouts saved. That's hellobello.ca, promo code ThisFamilyTree30 to start bundling with 30% off your first order. Don't forget, that's hellobello.ca, promo code ThisFamilyTree30. This promo is applicable to Canadians only. But we are also supported by... Bravado Designs. Bravado Designs make the best bras that you can get your hands on. That they do. They do. I was introduced to them when I was nursing Lucy for the first time like three years ago. Shane brought one home. I said Bravado Designs made Alex. Alex made Bravado Designs. It's been a love story ever since. I'm jealous a little bit, actually. And you should be. It's been a beautiful love story. But now my love story can continue even after I'm done nursing Betty. Because they have an everyday collection. These bras have no clips. They're not for nursing mothers. They are for anybody with boobs and they are so lovely to wear. They're so well made. So my sister could wear these. Your sister could wear these, Shane. You could wear them if you truly wanted to. Okay. You've been working those packs lately. But if you want to get the nursing bras, go to bravadodesigns.com or you can head to the Canadian website for access to the everyday collection at ca.bravadodesigns.com. And regardless of which website you go to, use the promo code thisfamilytree20 for 20% off your order. Again, that is bravadodesigns.com and thisfamilytree20. And now let's get back to our interview with Lynn. Let's see, I love baby carrying. And all of the baby carrying origins. I mean, people have been doing it for millennia, carrying their babies, especially you think about the hunter-gatherers. Like, ages ago, they were always on the move. Of course, they were baby carrying. And I think it's so beautiful how each culture has their own way to do that. So I'm curious, did you ever have the board too? No, and I wanted to and like COVID and everything. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't. And you know what? She ended up growing 
way faster than I thought she would. <laughs> so she's pretty much grown out of it now, mm. which kind of sucks because she's been in there a couple of times. Like she hasn't been in there as much as I was planning to have her in there, but yeah. And then for the Jamaican side, a lot of like food and Sean will, my partner will sometimes like talk patois and you nice. know, yeah. music. That's the best. And you know, as she grows, are you going to be like, are you going to be checking out what she's learning in history class and things like that? And are you going to be vocal if you're not seeing what you hope to see? Yeah. And I, I don't think, I mean, who knows what kind of mom I'm going to be. <laughs> um, I don't think I'll be the one like demanding that the school teach whatever. Mm-hmm. Maybe I will, but I know that I will be teaching her yeah. because I know that a lot of you know, a lot of the teaching stuff, you know, can happen at home. And depending on your culture, like, as you said, as a teacher, I think it's a lot that you need to teach like every culture, especially like you live in the GTA or, you know, a bigger center, you're going to have a lot of different cultures. Like you better know Mm -hmm. all the, you know, anniversaries and all the holidays. And it's, it's a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So kudos to you to being aware of it and being wanting to do it. But I think that it also needs to come from home. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but you know, something, and I, I totally agree, but then when it, when it does come to Canadian history, yes, it's yeah. like, you know, I, who knows, maybe, maybe it's because I am a teacher. I don't, maybe I'll just feel comfortable being vocal about it. I don't know. And No, when it comes to, so, so, so then, yes, I will change my answer Mm. because I definitely do think that it needs to be taught in school. And like, I was pissed. I was pissed Mm. off when I started learning all this in university. And I'm like, what, like how, and I think of my fellow, you know, part indigenous or full indigenous friends and schoolmates. And I'm like, we were like made to feel like we didn't exist. Like, where did we play in this history? Mm-hmm. No, history started when Christopher Columbus and whoever else came came to what is now known Canada. Well, no, that's not when history started, you know? So, yeah, I was pissed. And, yes, I do think that needs to change. And I know that some schools and some teachers, you know, Cruz to you, have implemented it and in their own way, whatever way that is. And I think some is better than nothing. So at, at this point, I think, you know, it's awesome that some are. And but more needs to be done and it needs to be on a more like it, like across the nation level and like all schooling, right? Yeah. French, English, whatever, Catholic or not, you know, it needs to be taught. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree. And, you know, one thing that pisses me off is when uh, parents, white, you know, conservative leaning parents, uh, sometimes I will hear that schools have an agenda. And they have a leftist agenda and it's teaching about these perceived inequalities that are happening. And they're just perceived. They're not they're not real inequalities because Canada is an equal country and we embrace multiculturalism. And it's like, yeah, we do to a degree, but there are still inequalities and you cannot get upset as a parent, you know, if your kid's in school, you can't get upset at a teacher for teaching about statistic inequalities because it's it's just fact it's not my opinion it's not my bias it is fact yeah and you know as much as it sucks that 
you know, all these children were being found in these unmarked graves, you know, all over Canada and the residential school system came kind of out, which I don't get because it's been out for years and years, but, but it goes to exactly that point where it's like, I don't want to know about it. Yeah. Right. Or I don't want to talk about it because it makes me uncomfortable mm-hmm. or because it's not the Canada that I, I know. And well, you, you can't live like that. You can't live under a rock, right? Like, yes, it sucks. And it made a lot of people uncomfortable. Yeah, but that's what life is. And in order to move forward, you have to have those uncomfortable conversations, right? So yeah, it's, it's tricky. I don't and, know. You know, one thing I want to ask you about along those lines is one thing that I see or hear, I guess, on social media. Uh, and again, this will be from Typically, people who haven't yet accepted or come to terms with the fact that they may have racial bias in their own head, or people who sometimes support and do outwardly racist things, they then say, oh, well, I can't be racist. I don't see color. I'm not teaching my children to see color. So I want to ask you what is so problematic about that phrase? Yeah, unless you're blind, you see color <laughs> and everyone sees color. So to say that you don't see color is a huge problem because you're saying that you actually don't even see, right, black people or and you don't acknowledge what they've gone through or you don't acknowledge what the indigenous people have gone through. Like it's it's so it's bad and I know that it's said with good intentions. And that most of us were raised kind of with those intentions and those words, right? It's like, no, you treat everybody the same and everybody's the same, but everybody is not the same. You know, yes, we are one race. We are supposed to be one race, but no, there's different class systems. And unfortunately, you know, I'm trying to think of the, there's a saying and it explains this really well. And I, I'm gapping out now, but is something about, you know, if someone starts off on their knees, but you start off on your feet, how are you the same? Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So by saying that you don't see color, it's saying that you're not acknowledging that they're starting on their knees and you started on your feet and that you're you're uncomfortable with admitting that you do see the color. You, you have to, like I said, unless you're blind, you see color. And kids as young as like in their months, like not even a year, notice color and can see that like Genevieve yeah Genevieve knows that her dad is black and her mom looks white Mm -hmm. right like she doesn't know I'm indigenous yet but (laughs) she'll know soon enough Mm -hmm. and so yeah it's it's important Mm -hmm. and actually even something I read which I thought was really interesting about kids with color is that kids will automatically kind of um, associate or be drawn to other adults who look like their parents. So if they have a black dad or, you know, black mom, they'll be more prone to like approach other, mm-hmm. you know, black, you know, which makes sense. I mean, of course, that just, yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, what they feel sense. comfortable in trusting around. Yeah. 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 But it goes to show like, you can't say that you don't see color. And saying that you don't see color is a huge problem. Yeah. Well, they've like done, on the just of it. That, yeah. yeah. No, they've done studies with dolls and they've held out, you know, dolls with different racial profiles or backgrounds to kids. And then the kids typically gravitate toward the ones that they look like or that they see, 
most represented in media, which is typically the white doll, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's often in these studies that I've seen, I think there's videos of it too. There's one that went viral maybe a couple years ago. And the kid was saying, well, the kids, like multiple were saying, well, this one is prettier. This one's pretty. I like this one. And again, it was always the white doll, even if the child maybe was not white. And there's something, yeah. yeah, And there's something wrong there. And I've told this story on the podcast before, so listeners might recognize it, but uh, going to Toys R Us, right? Like I have two white daughters, but going to Toys R Us, there were literally three black dolls and what, 300 white ones? So if you're a child trying to identify, trying to see yourself in just culture outside of your home, it's getting better, but it's hard to do that sometimes. It's really hard. Like, are there, are there dolls or shows or anything that feature indigenous families or kids? So good, good question, because I talk about this actually, because I grew up, the only show that had indigenous people in it it was an adult show but I would I would watch it um was north of 60 and I don't even know if you know it um, I've heard it's of it. a Canadian you might ha- show my husband knows all that stuff he would know for sure I've heard of it That's I've never funny. seen it yeah yeah so and now we have like APTN which is the I think it's aboriginal network channel of some I don't know the exact um acronym but it's a channel all for like indigenous either like made by indigenous people shows or, you know, Indigenous actors and stuff like that in it. And I think it's great. And they do have, like, cartoons. They even have now shows with, like, uh, Indigenous language in it. Oh, no way. So, yeah, I don't have cable, but I do know that <laughs> they they have yeah. that, um, which has come a long way from when I was a kid. Because, like I said, it was north of 60. And even then, it was portraying, like, I, I think back of episodes now, and you had a lot of, like, the you know, the white savior stuff in it. And you still had like microaggressions and the Mm -hmm. the stereotypical, you know, drunken Mm -hmm. natives and stuff like that in it. So it's, it is what it is. It was what it was. Yes, things are better, but a long way to go because not only do we need to see ourselves in media, but what about who's creating those TV shows? and writing them and producing them and directing them. And what about, you know, awards ceremonies and stuff? Like, do we see them being awarded for their work? Mm-hmm. And like, it's very little, very, very Absolutely. little. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I want to talk about some of these things, like talking about books and whatnot. So I recently bought a book uh, in, I don't know, like last uh, spring. And it was in a Nook book. Um, and it talks about like it's like different words for things we see in the winter and then like or the things we see in the winter and then it gives you the Anuk word for it. And so there's the one my daughter loves, Kunik, which is like a nose, the nose kiss, right? Oh, cute. Which yeah. used to be referred to incorrectly as an Eskimo kiss, right? But that's Kunik. And she loves that. She loves giving me Kunik's. And then I think about that, and then I think about that doll that I was telling you about with the baby. I think about some of the uh, instruments we had in our house. Like we had a, a, it was a squash, like a hollowed out squash with like beads or stones in it and like to make music. We had like that we bought because we would go to powwows. Like I've been to like three powwows. 
And we would, well, I, this is what I want to ask you. I don't know if it's awesome. I got to ask you about this. So like we would buy these crafts and these musical instruments and things from these powwows. Now, is this appropriation? Is any of this appropriation? Please be honest with me because I need to know. Yeah, yeah, no. And no, so there are key things in what you said. So Mm -hmm. first you said like you attended powwow, which I think is awesome because powwows Mm -hmm. are open unless they're like closed ones for whatever ceremony. Usually powwows are open to everybody. Public can go and they invite people to go because they want you to see, you know, a different part of the indigenous culture because what do people see on tv or in the streets right they see the bad side right so no they want people to go to the powwow so awesome and they'll usually have open dances they, they would where everybody can go dance they yes. would do that and then no, they'd have they'd good. have dances just for their tribe and then they'd invite yeah. us and then my brother and i would go running around with them and it was fun <laughs> yes no that's good okay that's i was so good. i was really nervous to bring that up <laughs> sweating no and- no, <laughs> no, that's good. And that's culture appreciation. Mm-hmm. So you're going there, you're appreciating, you know, they're drumming, they're singing, their regalia, what it is, you're enjoying it with them, you know, you're celebrating with them. So that's appreciation. And another good thing you said is you guys would buy, you know, whatever it was while at those powwows. So I'm assuming you're buying it from Indigenous artists, yeah. you're buying it from Indigenous people. That's appreciation. You know, you buy beaded earrings or, you know, whatever it is from an indigenous artist. That's awesome. You're supporting them. That's appreciating their art, their culture. Appropriation would be like you learn how to bead or to make dream catchers and then you sell them for profit. Right. So that would be appropriation. Yeah. So, I mean, that's like a simple way, but, Mm -hmm. you know, a pretty easy way of explaining it. So, I mean, anybody could make a dream catcher or rattle or whatever else, or, you know, you just have to go to YouTube. You can learn how to make everything, but it's something else to then sell it for profit for you. If you're not indigenous, that's literally stealing the culture for your profit. Yep. No, absolutely. And again, for, you know, people that might have questions about, appropriation it's if a culture is oppressed by your culture and by your people and you are taking their you know aspects of their culture and using it as your own I think that's a good indicator is that culture oppressed by your culture yes okay don't do that perhaps right and yeah I do think that's a good indicator because you're feeding into it you're Mm -hmm. just continuing it No, right? ab- absolutely, absolutely. But I'm I'm glad to know that. And like with Halloween approaching even, you know, like loved Pocahontas. That came out, I think, in like 94. So like prime childhood for me. Obsessed. All of my everything. Like I had bedspread, the sheets, the pillowcases, the blanket, all Pocahontas. Pocahontas, Barbie doll, like John Smith Barbie doll, problematic. <laughs> and uh, like all of that stuff. And again, I mean, is it appropriation from Disney? I think so at that point. It is. And you know what? I am the same. So we're probably close to the same age because mm-hmm. I was huge on all the Disney movies. I still have the Pocahontas VHS and it breaks my heart <laughs> because, because it is so wrong yeah, because yeah. the real story of Pocahontas is she was something like 14. He was like 40 something or whatever. Like, and she was literally like raped and yeah. you know it's just it's she bad. died it's she, bad. she died a horrible yeah in a horrible way in a lonely way yeah yeah so to now have 
you know, Disney turned that into a fantasy and a fairy tale is literally textbook, like oppressing, but also like the whole white privilege in a way, because it's like, I can do this. I can take your story and I can spin it and I can do whatever I want with it. And I'm going to sell it and make millions. And, you know, it's just, it's, yeah. When I found out really, right, who Pocahontas was and what the whole story was and that it was even based on a real story in a way, I was like, oh man. And again, just the way Disney also portrayed it. And I know we're talking about a different time, but it doesn't matter. We know better now, right? And I'm sure they still make money off of Pocahontas, which- Oh, they must. You know, is wrong. No, they must. And we're due. I think we're due for another, you know, indigenous story that's popular, that gets kids. And I know there's so many problems with Disney and things, because then again, it ultimately is for profit, but it is such a huge company and kids are so obsessed that if there is a story where, you know, there is- a huge population of people in North America, not just Canada, that is represented in that movie. I think I think that could be a good oh, thing. Totally. And that's from outsiders. So, like, correct me. Yeah, again, no, I agree. And I think that we need to, like, move forward. Like, as much as – this is my opinion. Um, but as much as, like, we need to understand the history and learn the history and people need to know, like, why we are where we are today, where there's no drinking water, you know, up north – Like we treat immigrants better than we treat our own people, right? Like, yes, we need to learn all that and do better, but we also need to move forward. How can we work together, move forward to, you know, fix these things and to support our Indigenous communities? Because we don't need to come in and save them. We need to empower them. We need to give them back a voice, right? And like they were sustainable, they were sustaining lifestyle for for tens of thousands of years before we came. And I say we because half of me, I guess. uh, (laughs) Like it's confusing, right? The hyphenated Mm, part. Because part of me was the problem and part of me, you know, is the minority. Like it's so weird. Maybe Um, that means you're the solution, Lynn. Yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying. (laughs) But yeah, I think that we need to just think of ways and come up with ways of moving forward, working together, acknowledging what happened and doing better. No, I I think that's wonderful. And honestly, I I think that's the best point to, to end this conversation on because it, there is hope, there is a path to change and every single person is responsible for it. Like every single one of us, every single person listening to this right now is a part of that change. And, you know, you can just not address it and you can go through life not addressing it, but then nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to actually change. So if you care in the smallest way, be a part of that change. You need to be. Yeah. And it's as simple as what we said, just call it out or, or do your own research. Like there's free courses. Like I'm going to do a little plug. If you go on my link on Instagram, there's a free, there's a link to a free course. I think it's university of Alberta and you learn all about the history of Canada. Like if you really, you know, want to know and do your own thing. But Lynn, what is your Instagram account? Plug that plug. Tell me your Instagram account, your podcast, where can people find you? Listen to it. Yes. Okay. So I'm at the mixed mama life on Instagram And the podcast is hyphenated with a hyphenate (laughs) um, at the or hyphenated the mixed mama life. You can find the podcast anywhere you listen to your podcast. So Spotify, Apple, Google, I'm on Amazon music, et cetera. 
And yeah, in my link, I have some stuff on, on all kinds of minorities and just learning about BIPOC. So if you do want to do the work, there is plenty of resources out there. You don't have to just call upon your token Black or Native or Indigenous friend. You can go online and do the work yourself. Absolutely. And truly, thank you so much for this conversation. On like, I have never planned a interview in the morning and then had such a smooth interview at night. So you were, you were such a delight to speak to. Thank you so much, Lynn. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. Yeah, it definitely was. But all the best. You had no reason to be nervous. You were so good. <laughs> you were so good. Thanks. <laughs> all the best. Stay, take care. You too. Bye. That was Lynn. That was Lynn. And she was so sweet. So I was another like super quick, amazing connection that I made with her. She's been following this family tree for a bit. Was she like, where's Shane? Why isn't he here? I think everybody thinks that, Shane. Good. I think that everybody thinks that when they come on the computer and she's like, oh, it's just Alex now. And I think they're I think they're disappointed, honestly. It's I a agree. source of insecurity for me. Yeah, it should be. It's less funny. Well, undeniably. <laughs> <laughs> but it's probably a lot smarter and, I don't know, makes more sense. I, I'm not <laughs> sure. But no, she was, she was fantastic. It was funny because like I asked Linda to do it like last Sunday on Sunday night. And then... We ended up rec- oh no, I asked her on Monday morning and then we recorded Monday evening and it was just it happened so fast and she was so game, she was so easy and I I really loved that. Like no, everything I love that. about it. Yeah. I flipped through your Zoom link. Mm-hmm. She seemed like a delightful woman. Yeah, she's amazing. I am going to listen to this interview. I just haven't she was as amazing. Yet. Uh but who's next on the docket? All right, next up we got Aaron Pepler, my pool party friend. That's so a this, I name. feel like this episode, I feel really close to the two guests you know, on it. But Erin Pepler, Send Me Into the Woods Alone, her essays on motherhood. We talk about that, talk about parenting. And again, just a great one. All right. Before we get to Erin Pepler, let's tell everyone who we are supported by. We are supported by Mabel's Labels. Frustrated by their children's things getting lost, mixed up, and leaving home never to return, Julie Cole and three other mom friends knew they could do better than just scribbling their kids' names on some masking tape. From there, Mabel's Labels has grown into an award-winning market-leading company loved by moms and dads and any kind of caregiver or school teacher alike. Lucy loves them because she gets to co-create them online with me and she takes a little bit of ownership for her things now I'm finding. But we make her labels in the shape of hearts, cherries, hedgehogs. You know, they really look adorable. I second that. They do. (laughs) And Shane and I love them because their line of products is huge. They feature everything from baby bottle labels, allergy and medical alert products, sports labels, household labels, and seasonal items. But really, who's to say where a label has to go? You can really put these things anywhere. You can. And Lucy literally labels everything in our house because of it. As do I. You know, I've been using it in the fridge lately, as we've talked about. Oh, I know. It's causing a little contention in this household. But the other great thing about these labels is that they are so durable. I'm talking laundry, dishwasher, and microwave safe, and they're 100% guaranteed. Can you hit it with a hammer? I guess you could. But head on over to mapleslabels.ca to start creating your very own labels and use the promo code ThisFamilyTree15 for 15% off your order. They deliver internationally and offer free standard shipping in Canada and in the U.S. Again, that's mapleslabels.ca and ThisFamilyTree15. But we are also supported by... Seedlip, the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirit. First and best! 
just the best. Crafted without alcohol, sugar, or calories, Seedlip Spirits solve the dilemma of what to drink when you're not drinking, whether it's for the night, the month, or forever. Or maybe you're just recording a podcast and you want to keep your mind and acuity very sharp. So you drink Seedlip, hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically speaking, we do love it on our Saturday night podcast recordings. And throughout the week. And throughout the week. And you know, as a non-drinker, it never feels great when your only options are water, soda, or sugary mocktails. But now you can skip the booze without feeling left out when it comes to your social life. So whether you prefer punchy citrus flavors, aromatic spices, or savory herbs, Seedlip offers drink for every type of drinker. It's crafted using a bespoke process, including traditional copper distillation of botanicals. And each of Seedlip's three variants, so you've got Garden 108, Grow 42 and Spice 94 are alcohol-free and have their own unique flavors, which pair so perfectly with a splash of tonic. Plus, they can also be used to make more complex cocktails like the watermelon sour we made tonight. And you'll find those in the Seedlip cocktail book or on their Instagram account at Seedlip underscore NA. So head on over to SeedlipDrinks.com or .ca and use the promo code ThisFamilyTree10 for 10% off your favorite non-alcoholic spirit. This is available in Canada and in the US. And again, that is SeedlipDrinks.com and this family tree 10. And now let's get to our interview with Aaron. Aaron, I am so happy that you were able to come on to this family tree podcast today. We met for the first time last week at a back to school pool party for Mabel's Labels. You said we did. you said you had written a book, uh, a collection of essays on motherhood, send me into the woods alone, essays on motherhood. And the second you said that I was like, all right, DM me, we need to set something up. This is great. So I, I just want a little background because I've met you, but I don't really know you. So do you work for Mabel's Labels? I don't. I've written for them a lot of times because they do have a blog called The Mabelhood. I've known Julie for a long time. Um, she's always been super supportive. So I've always done a lot of things with them, but I've never actually worked for them. Okay. But I, I kind of joke I'm like extended team because I know all the Mabel's people and I show up at their events. And when I go to conferences, I end up sitting at the tables with them because just because I know everybody. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm more of a freelancer. And are you a writer by trade then? Yeah. So I'm a full-time writer. So I'm freelance, which means essentially I work for myself. But a lot of what I do is editorial, which is what mm-hmm. I love, which is writing for magazines and writing for uh, parenting blogs. And uh, I work on a, been working on my book for the past two years, which is coming out in April, but also kind of bread and butter. I do a bit of copywriting. That's my, my deep, dark secret. Oh, that's all that it's fun. <laughs> my, you know, my husband does that too. And, uh, there, there's, there's fun to it, even though it's not as, you know, you're more restricted, uh, mm-hmm. to, for your clients, but it is, it is pretty fun. I think working within those restrictions sometimes. Um, yeah. Okay. So what, what inspired you to write Send Me Into the Woods Alone? It's kind of funny if I think back on the timeline, because I remember I had a very difficult pregnancy. Both of them were really difficult. But I think the first time, because it was so unexpected, I went into it thinking I'm going to get pregnant. I'll have this baby. And I kind of had this image of what it would be like. And then I had this awful, awful pregnancy where I didn't enjoy it. And I was miserable and I was physically so sick. And I was really isolated because I couldn't mm. go anywhere I was sick all the time. And then everyone I spoke to was kind of like, oh yeah, just, you know, tea and toast, you'll be okay. And then I eventually, I had a uh, hyperemesis and I was, it was a lot more serious. And so it was just one of those things where from day one, I was like, this is not what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. 
So I think when my daughter, my firstborn was really young, I started thinking about like, I want to write about this. And initially I thought like, I'll write some articles. And then, uh, you know, I had another baby 19 months later and same thing, you know, amazing baby, love my kids to pieces. The pregnancies sucked. They were awful. Um, and so I had a lot to say about that. And then I think every stage of motherhood has been the same thing where I thought, it's amazing. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, but there's so many things people don't tell you. And there's so much to talk about that needs to be talked about uh, more. I think so women don't feel alone, mm-hmm. the good and the bad stuff, yeah. right? Like the stuff that's funny, that's maybe a little embarrassing yeah. um, and the stuff that's a bit more sensitive and the stuff that's hard. So eventually I was like, my kids are older. I can actually write it now. How, <laughs> so how it took old? a long time. Oh, I imagine like it's hard to find time to do anything, but how old are your kids now? So my son is turning nine in a couple of weeks okay. and he's the youngest and my daughter is going to be 11 this winter. So when I say like, a long time, I mean like yeah. they're in <laughs> So, okay. I, w- I want to talk a little bit about your pregnancies because I also had mm-hmm. very uh, terrible pregnancies. Loved being pregnant in the sense that, you know, I felt like I was keeping my baby safe. I liked them because they were always on me. However, oh, and people are so nice to you uh, generally when you're pregnant, like, you know, holding yeah. doors open, making sure, you know, giving you seats if they're, you're standing somewhere. I loved that aspect of pregnancy. I thought that was amazing. Did not experience it with my second giving birth in the pandemic, but that's okay. Other than that, I hated pregnancy. I yeah. felt terrible. Everybody kept telling me, oh, don't worry, in the second trimester, you're going to feel better, you're going to feel better. The the what I was experiencing just switched to different symptoms and different awful, you know, physical and emotional things that we had to deal with, whether it was mm-hmm. the babies, you know, being in danger of not making it, uh, like not being viable, or just how I was feeling. Like my second pregnancy, I had HG as well, and yeah. they put me on medication, um, and I I went from throwing up 20, 25 times a day before I was on the medication to throwing up, you know, five times a day, which was a huge improvement, yeah. but okay. still it was horrendous. You're not better. No. You're just functioning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was still, was yeah. And I was still not, I was still nauseous. I just wasn't throwing up as much. And five times a day is still a lot to have your face in a toilet. And especially while I'm working and trying yeah. to take care of my toddler. And it, it was so hard it was so hard and I just couldn't wait to get the babies out and then with my shifting right because you keep thinking if I get to the next week or the next trimester I'm going to feel less sick and people keep telling you that oh don't worry by this week you're gonna be fine and for me it was childbirth both times Mm -hmm. I was like when they left my body that's when I felt better (laughs) and and then you have new things to deal with so thank god you weren't nauseous after that right because then you have a whole slew of other things and yeah, exactly. Got a newborn. Mm-hmm. And you know, often our I just had this conversation with somebody how our expectations don't often meet the reality of what happens. And we have so many expectations for ourselves, for our partners, for what our baby who's not even earthside yet is going to be like. And I'm sure these expectations, especially for our kids, last a very long time. And that's something we all have to work on managing. But what is when is the first time that, you know, when an expectation didn't meet the reality or where there was a huge discrepancy there and it really knocked you on your ass? Like, was that during pregnancy or was there something in postpartum that did that? Yeah, it would be pregnancy for sure. Because for me, 
one element that might have factored in is I had my kids pretty young. Mm -hmm. I got married at 24 and I I was pregnant with my daughter at 25. And so I think that I was, I was ready to have a baby, but I maybe wasn't as vocal in advocating for myself when I was so sick in pregnancy because people who had had kids before me, Mm -hmm. which were mostly older people because none of my friends were having kids yet. So I'm talking about like, you know, aunts, people in the family, other, you know, you know, employers, whoever, they would say, oh, it's going to be fine, get better. Or everybody feels really nauseous. You just power through. And so I'd be really like, oh, I'm just, I'm just bad at being pregnant. Like I'm just like weak and I I complain more than other people. And then after some time there, it got worse and worse. And there was a diagnosis and I was like, no, I'm really, truly sick. Like my body rejects like the pregnancy hormone. And I really just do really badly. So that was, I think the first thing where I thought, I don't feel good and I'm not enjoying this. And this doesn't feel like this beautiful, magical time. And I wanted the baby so badly, but I really, really just couldn't wait to be not pregnant. Like I just want, and people would talk about being scared of labor and I'd be like, no, no, I wouldn't do anything to get this baby out as long as they're safe, as long as they're healthy. Like I was like, you can take it out any way you want. Like I just need to not be pregnant anymore. I just want, I just want to have children. I don't want to do this. And so I think that was the first time. I think the second thing that comes to mind is maybe again, because I was fairly young, I got a lot of external judgment from strangers where I'd be like in a coffee shop and someone would be like, your baby's overdressed. And I'd be like, but it's winter and I'm just popping in and out to get a coffee. Like, you know, I'm not going to strip them down for two and two minutes in and out of a coffee shop. And people actually said that to you. Oh, I'd have like, keep in mind, I was 26. I just turned 26 yeah. when my daughter was born. And I looked young. and I'm probably like wearing my like York university hoodie. And like, I look like a student and they're probably like, look at this little <laughs> thing with her baby. This is what she's doing. And so it didn't happen with people who knew me because I think motherhood came actually really naturally, not to say it's easy, but I felt very little anxiety. Once the baby was born, I just wanted to, be with her and you know all the normal stuff a bit of you know separation anxiety but I felt confident as a mom from day one I was like I know what I'm doing with this baby she's my baby and it just felt so natural but then I would be like buying diapers and someone would be like where are her shoes and I'd be like well she took them off six times so I put them in my purse and it would be like the middle of summer I'm like she's in a stroller she's not going to step on glass like I'm mm-hmm. like, you know it was a lot of just comments that I don't think I would have gotten if I'd been 35 yeah yeah No, I, and it's funny because 25 isn't like historically, it's not young to be having a child. No, but it's young for a millennial. It's millennial young, which is what I am. Yes. Okay. So I, I, I think back to me at 25. So you got married at 24. Oh my Lord. I was not ready for marriage at 24. And, uh, (laughs) and you know, it's, it's wild. Like I, I was a, totally different person in a lot of ways. Like I'm, I'm the same person that I have been forever in many ways mm-hmm. as well. But when it comes to my capacity for being able to advocate for myself in a relationship, know what I want in a relationship, be able to accommodate what my partner needs and what they want and try to, to, to marry those things together and then bring a kid into it. Oh my God. I mean, I would have learned quick because just like with anything in life and you you learn this, yeah, you have to. And you learn this as a mom really quick. It's like your capacity, your threshold for what you can do and what you can take on and the amount of shit that can get piled on you and you still stay afloat magically, it just keeps growing, right? I thought that 
I was at my max during pregnancy. Then the kid came. Then I'm like, oh my gosh, I can never do more than this. Then I got pregnant again. Then that kid came. And then mm-hmm. we started TikToking. Then our business grew in this way. And now I'm going back to work again. And you're, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but you you do realize your full capacity as you gain more experiences in life, I guess, which is more positive. But mm-hmm. as a 25-year-old, when you got pregnant, 24-year-old, where where were you at? Like, did you feel ready when you first found out you were pregnant? Like, when you peed on that test, looked at it, were you like, okay, I got this. Like, this is where I am in life, and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I felt ready, and it was something we wanted. What was funny was I remember going to the doctor to have it confirmed with the blood test. And the nurse, I had just moved and it was a new doctor. So they didn't really know me. Mm-hmm. And I'm again, wearing like probably a university hoodie because <laughs> I was like 20s and nauseous and just trying to go to the doctor and get a blood test. And I remember the nurse saying to me very gently, are you waiting for the pregnancy test results? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just waiting. She goes, how are you feeling? I said, well, you know, wait, I'm anxious to know. And she goes, if it's positive, are you going to want to know your options? And I went, oh, and it was the first moment where I was like, oh, I don't think I fit other people's view of what a a mom is. And it was interesting because I was like in a very like happy relationship. I still am, my husband and I, I was married. We had tried, like this was an intentional pregnancy, Um, but I was like, oh, I don't like she's, and I was grateful to her because I'm very much like pro-choice, your body, your choice, all of that. So in a way I was like, this nurse is amazing because she's very gently telling me like, what do you need? And like, you know, I'm here for you. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. And as soon as I said, oh, I'm hoping it's positive. She went great. That's wonderful. And she was really nice, but I, it was the kind of thing where I went, oh, like, did they ask everyone that? And then I eventually asked my friends and everyone was like, no, nobody asked me that. <laughs> and so and I remember I, I wrote about this in my book. There was a time where I was super pregnant. I was going to Mount Sinai in Toronto to my, where my OB was. And I was so pregnant. So I hopped in a cab instead of taking the subway home. And the cab driver looked at me and goes, I hope that baby has a real father. And I was like, oh my God, everyone thinks I'm this like baby. But I did look really young and I think yeah, but I got still it, it wasn't cool. But I think my experience of pregnancy and early motherhood was very much impacted by the way I was perceived as being really young, even though in reality, I wasn't crazy young and it was a choice I made and it was the right choice. I'm so happy I had my kids young. My husband and I are both happy we had them young. We're happy we had them back to back. Like they're really close in age. They're only one grade apart That's because amazing. one was born early 2011 the other was born late 2012 so they're in school back to back with the same friends and yeah it's just um external factor sometimes all right so you know tell me tell me to shut up if I if this isn't something you want to you want to answer but I'm always curious when people want to get married young again because I was so so not looking for that at 24 like I may have had three separate boyfriends at one time at 24 (laughs) And was loving it. So I'm always curious when people do have children young and it's a conscious decision. And when they do get married young, is it – do you come from a religious background? Is this something just that people do in your family, your your friend group? Or is this just something that you really just – you felt? No to all of that. Yeah, it was very much – it wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't – I shouldn't say wanted. Like it's not that I was coerced into marriage. Like (laughs) when I got married, I wanted to. (laughs) But when I was – dating my husband we started dating when I was 20 
and I'd known him for a few years and I'd had like high school boyfriends and stuff. And we started dating when I was in my first year of university. And I had this feeling like, oh no, like this is, this is it. We're going to get married. Like, I love him. This is it. But I also very consciously was like, I don't want to get married till I'm 30. Um, I don't have kids until I'm in my thirties. And it was a very much this like ideal situation I had in my mind where my parents got married really young. They had three kids by the time my mom was like 27. Oh, wow. And they got, yeah. div- they got divorced by the time she was like 33. And she had to go through a lot of single mom stuff. And obviously I was, you know, oldest daughter. I, I was there to see like all the hardships she went through. So in my mind, I was like, my life is going to be a lot easier if I like build a career and really like get to know myself and establish my own life. And then I can do marriage and kids later. And that was my plan. And none of my friends were married. None of them were really even dating in a serious way. And then I just found the right person and got married. And it was very much a thing where I was like, this is not what I wanted to do. I'm very happy I did it. But yeah, no, I'm an atheist. I do come from like a lightly religious family. My grandpa was a United church minister, but they're like the most left-leaning of the Protestant churches where if they're not married young and have babies, like they're like, if if they're a church where if you went in and said, I'm having premarital sex, they'd be like, you do you. So (laughs) there's good. That's all. You know, more should be more open. Um, It's funny because I actually, I made this comment. We had a psychotherapist on recently and he was saying he had, they got married when they were like 20, had their kids at 21 or 22. And I was like, oh yeah, you're like one of those Christians, aren't you? And he was like, actually, yes, I am. And I said, oh, okay, perfect. (laughs) I was making a joke, but I made the right call. So, you know, you having the childhood you did earlier on, you said that when your baby came out, you felt that immediate natural connection and motherhood was innate in you. And do you think that, you know, that feeling and having that confidence when your first baby pops out at such a young age, do you think that came from the position you were kind of in during your childhood with your mom and everything? I think probably to some extent. So I am the oldest of three. My parents split up when I was like nine, ten-ish. Um, and then we moved because we moved out of town just so my mom could get a place where her new job was going to be. And so it was a situation where it was like, uh, latchkey kid. I was taking care of my siblings a lot. I was also the first grandchild on both sides of the family. So I was wow. the oldest kid in the family just in general. Yeah. So even when my parents were together, it was like, I was the oldest cousin and there was always little kids around. And I always was the one who was babysitting. And um, in university, when I was paying my way through university, I worked in a daycare because I loved kids so much. So I think part of it was always having that kind of like, first daughter, oldest grandchild, I'm in charge here. I've always been in charge of kids. I've been changing diapers since I was like, you know, a tween. I know what I'm doing. I think part of it was maybe the the confidence of youth where mm-hmm. when you're 25, <laughs> maybe you're just like, I know what I'm doing, even if you don't. <laughs> uh, 100%. Yeah. Which worked out fine. And I don't know what else. It, it just felt... I, I want to specify that there's a difference between it feeling really, really natural and it feeling easy. Like I felt it was so natural. I I don't mean to say it wasn't like, like there were sleepless nights and there's like, there's so many parts about motherhood that are really tough. And that's a lot of what I write about um, is just you know, from the invisible workload to the uh, separation anxiety to like the, the mental stress and like of decision-making constantly, like what is right for my child. I do find it a lot easier to advocate for my children than for myself. So now in my 30s, I can advocate for myself. I'm 37 now. But you know, when I had my baby and I was 26, I was like, 
pregnancy, I was all like meek and like, oh, I guess I'm just bad at this. But as soon as my daughter was born, I was like, no, nobody can say anything to me. I will defend her. It's just that mom of a bear thing where I'm like, yeah, to the death. No one could no, <laughs> I'd I, be there. I, I agree. And, and it's funny that you say like now you can advocate for yourself in you know, probably a more assertive way, more confident way. And I feel the same. Like, I think that through motherhood and through having to, like, you have to be the responsible person. You have to be the adult. And I still so much don't feel like an adult. Like, I just, I don't feel like an adult half the time. I still feel like I'm like out of 17. But when it comes to things like that, like those really important things, like, advocating for yourself, advocating for your family, and just stepping up when you need to. I feel like so much of that came after I had my first baby. And I, I even just my relationship with myself grew in oh, a way more positive way than it did before I have kids. Like when it comes yeah. to how I perceive my 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 body, my talents, that you know, just my relationships with other people, everything changed in a more positive way. Did you feel that in that regard as well? Yeah, it was it was both of those things. So I think the becoming more confident part of it is aging, part of it's being a mom, like you said. For me, um, it was the giving up people pleasing because when I was pregnant, part of the reason I was so meek was me being like, oh, I don't want to be a bother. I feel awful. Like, I mean, pregnancy feels like I'm dying every day, but I'm not going to complain because people keep telling me this is okay. Whereas with my daughter and then with my son, it was like, no, like, like I'm going to advocate for what they need because that mama bear thing kicks in. So the people pleasing has to end. And same thing with the silly examples with like the socks and stuff. Like when a stranger tells you like your baby should have a hat on or baby shouldn't have a hat on. And you're like, you know what your baby needs and how fast you're going to be in and out of a building or like you know, all those things. So you just kind of go, okay, and keep moving. You don't let it eat at you um, because you don't care what they think. So but yeah, I think that as you get older and you get deeper into motherhood, you kind of, you find yourself, you find your voice and you start to care less what other people think. And that's really empowering. So it's not that I don't care in the sense of like nobody else's opinion matters, but it's, you start to get that idea of these are the opinions that do matter. And this is what my family needs. And this is what I need. And you get a little bit better at that. Yeah, I think. And and it's not just a straight path. Like, it's not always easy. It's not always going to be easier to do those things. But I do think that, you know, even when I falter, I'm not faltering as much as I would have when I was a 22-year-old imbecile, you know, running around the streets of London during my university years. And it just what I can what I can do for myself and see in myself is again, just so much more like I have more confidence in my own brain and in my own, you know, skills with people and things That's like different. that than I did. And mm-hmm. I, I think that came from motherhood and from seeing what I can do every day. And again, that threshold, right? Like what I'm capable yeah. of that I didn't even know. And then seeing my kids grow up and love me and do all these things and it's like wow like I, I freaking did that like I did yeah. that you were a tiny little thing in my uterus and now you're a thing walking around and going to preschool yeah. and you're an awesome thing like you look at your kids and you go yeah. like I must be doing something right because you know they're happy and they're healthy and they're smart and they're kind to people and so when I'm questioning myself and going like, oh, am I being too strict on this? Or maybe not too, not strict enough. Like those are the things that I kind of get at myself about still. It's just the little 
nuances of like, even like how much freedom to give them because my instinct would be totally to helicopter mom, but I don't (laughs) because I am very conscious of like, that would be detrimental to my kids. And so I don't want them to be like 12 year olds who have never made their own breakfast or walked home from school or who go to me for everything. I want them to come to me when they need me, like when they really do. And I want them to always come to me if they have a problem because I can help them, but not like a problem. Like, Oh, my brother's annoying me or like, Oh, I I need a drink. It's like, no, no, no. There's, there's gotta be things you can do for yourself. So there's, there's little things that I beat myself up about where I go like, Oh, like, should they be doing more or less or like at what age should they be doing this? And Mm -hmm. I think the fact that I think about it so much is it shows how invested we get like as mom. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not just the like, we're going to raise them this way. It's a million decisions every day about when my kid asks me to grab a drink, do I go, yeah, of course I'll get that for you because I'm a nice person and I'm a nurturing person and I want to get them that thing they need. Or do I go, buddy, get yourself, you need to get yourself a drink. I need to say it nicely, but like, say, I'm not going to be like your kind of like servant there all the time. Like you've got to learn to do things for yourself. And where's the line between me being a nice person, grabbing a drink for someone in my family and me coddling my kids because I'm always just doing everything for them. Oh, 100%. And and I will say along the lines of coddling. So I used to work for a private school and we used to take like the richest of the rich kids from Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, and bring them overseas for a high school credit. These were like 16, 17 year olds. No, I did that. Yeah what like you were a student on that yeah I went to Berlin when I was or not Berlin I went to Berlin later I went to Munich when I was 16 on exchange like without my parents oh that okay so it was it wasn't through Blythe it was like through an exchange program during the school year yeah, it was That's like a high amazing. school exchange That's awesome. for a month in the summer. Yeah. That is so cool. So yeah. So mm-hmm. it it was similar to that's like, but we'd they just do one credit, right? So we we'd take them to like a resort or a city, whatever. And mm-hmm. the first within the first two days there, um, because I vice principaled those trips, the one of the first orders of business I had to teach the entire group of kids. Sometimes there was up to 120 kids, like mm-hmm. 17-year-olds, how to do their laundry. Cause they had never learned how to do their laundry. My 10 year old does her laundry. It's amazing. And so, and it's because we told her, like my husband, it was his idea actually. So I'll give him credit. But because we'd had these conversations, my husband and I about like, when do we give them this responsibility or that Mm -hmm. one? And we don't want them to be coddled. We don't want them to be entitled. Um, And part of it is like, for me, as much as I just said, like, oh, I went to Europe when I was 16. Like I worked from the age of 15 and I saved up money from my part-time job. And I think my grandparents chipped in a bit and I I worked to go on trips like that. And same thing in university. I went on exchange for a semester, but I graduated from university with like $50,000 worth of debt. I wasn't like a rich kid going to do these trips. I was like someone who was like, oh, I'm going to make it work. I'm going to do it. So I was really fortunate to be able to, but it wasn't like a a handed to me thing. 100%. Um, So my husband and I have had a lot of talks about like, we want them to have everything they need in life. We never want them to be stressed about money. We never want them to be just worrying about some of the things I worried about when Mm -hmm. I was a kid, but we don't want them to be entitled and we don't want them to be coddled. And we're not wealthy, but we're way more comfortable than my parents were Mm -hmm. when I was a kid. I mean, we have two incomes. We're just like, you know, 
happily middle class, which is a lot more than I had. It's so a lot more than a lot of I, people have, right? And more than a lot of yeah. people have, we're very aware of that. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we never like, we're never going to worry about whether or not they have a roof over their head or groceries in the fridge. They're not going to Europe every summer, but like, <laughs> they never worry about the basics. So when my daughter turned 10, we said, um, like when, you know, a couple of weeks after your birthday, you're going to start doing your laundry. And my eight-year-old already puts this away. They don't do much. Like, to be honest, it's not like we've taught them like the basics of cooking. We try to get them to keep their rooms clean. We fail a lot at that because they're kids and their rooms are messy, but we do make an effort to be like, at this age, we think you should kind of be able to do that. And we warn them. We'll say like, Hey, you know, by the end of the school year, you should be walking home yourself, like something like that. And we give them kind of the idea before it happens. And then we slowly go and start doing that and giving them that freedom and back to the helicopter mom thing, it sometimes kills me. Like when I'm like, oh, sure, you can go out and play outside and go up the block and call on your friends and come back in an hour or two. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know where they are right now. You know, they're in the neighborhood. It, I don't like that at all. But I hide that from them because I, I know it would be bad for them to have parents that just hovered and didn't let them out of their sight. So, Yeah. No, it's, it's funny too, how that has evolved. Uh, just that style of parenting. Like I think of when my dad and my mom were young, but my dad tells stories, but as an eight year old, he would ride his bike, you know, 20 miles away to go to his own baseball game and then Mm -hmm. come home at night. Or as a 13 year old, he'd hitchhike to his, you know, school basketball game or whatever though. And the parents aren't even checking in at that point. Like they don't, they just just are on a different. Yeah. And then when I was young, I was just outside all day somewhere in the neighborhood with kids on our bicycles. Just yeah, me too. All day, every day until dinner time, and then I'd come in, and then that was it every single day. And my parents would ask at the end of the day, oh, what'd you do? Like, who are you playing with? Blah, blah, blah. And there was – it's not like – it's not neglect at all. They were no. so involved. My parents were wonderful, and they were so involved. But it it was just that the concerns were were different, and now it's like, I want to be able to let my kid go play in the neighborhood all day. But same with you. I, I'm i already like getting anxiety thinking about that. Thinking about, oh my God, but what if they get hit by a car? What if someone gives them candy? Lucy freaking loves candy. How am I going to deal with this? But it's us. It's not the world. Because if you look at like how things were in our childhood and how things are now, it's not like there's suddenly a rash of kidnappers that appeared no. in the last 10 years. And that's why we're all freaking out. If you ask QAnon, they'll tell you differently. But I, <laughs> I agree with you. But it's honestly, it's just as, as parents, like where our mind shift has gone, like our mindset has gone and our minds um, have shifted to that. Like we have to be on top of our kids all the time. And I try to be a little bit more free range because I think it's so much healthier, but because I'm part of this generation where it's like, God forbid your kid do anything or be out of your sight for a minute. It's neglect. You think of your stories of like kids, people letting their kids go to the park up the street and somebody calls like, the police to be like, there's unsupervised children. So in a sense, I worry about getting in trouble from some, you know, jerk who thinks my kids are neglected than actually neglecting my kids. Like I know my kids are never going to be genuinely neglected. They're always cared for. And we have a great little village where I live, where the community I live in, um, I'm on a quiet street where there's a ton of kids And even if I don't have my eyes on my kids all the time, I know all the moms in the neighborhood. And I often look out in my backyard, especially throughout the pandemic where we haven't had any indoor play dates, but there's been a constant rotation of the neighborhood kids coming in and out of all the backyards, playing outside. And there's always somebody who's keeping an eye out. 
that's reassuring. And I think that's what every parent needs is to know that it's not just your house. It's like they know which are the houses they could go to if they did need a, a parent, even if it's not their parent. All right, Aaron, we're going to take a quick break and let our listeners know who we're supported by. We're supported by True Earth. If you listen to our podcast, you know that Shane and I are trying to reduce our environmental footprint. It was my idea. Yeah, get out of here. But one way we're doing this is by eliminating single-use plastics in our household. And our laundry room seems to be one of the biggest culprits for this. It is essentially a graveyard for old laundry detergent bottles. Oh, and I'm in there more than anybody, so I would know. Are you, Shane? No, I'm, not. I'm never <laughs> in there. <laughs> so we discovered True Earth laundry detergent a few months ago and have absolutely not look back. The detergent comes in pre-measured soluble strips, which you simply rip apart and then just toss in your laundry machine. It is so easy. It's kind of fun after you've had a hard day, just rip those strips, you know? Yeah, it's kind of cathartic. And you know, the best part, there's no plastic. So the packaging is so compact, so light, and it's drastically changed the tidiness of our laundry room. Plus, since we have two kids with super sensitive skin, we opt for the baby detergent. It's fragrance-free, gentle on everybody's skin, and it is still so tough on the grime and the dirt. And the pudding. And the pudding. I'm a messy eater. <laughs> but yeah, our clothes and especially Shane's clothes come out smelling great and they're just like crispy clean. So check out True Earth Detergent at True.Earth and use our promo code ThisFamilyTree10 to get 10% off your order. You guys are going to love this product. Take my word for it. Again, that's True.Earth. T-R-U dot E-A-R-T-H. And This Family Tree 10. But we are also supported by the Miku Pro Smart Baby Monitor. This monitor is the most accurate sleep and breathing monitor like that you could find. How do anywhere. you know? How do you know? Because we have two and we are obsessed. And you know what? I didn't have it when Lucy was a newborn. And I lost a heck of a lot of sleep because I was always freaking out watching the monitor to see her chest rise and fall to make sure she was breathing. But with Betty, it it reads the breathing for me. And I don't have to lose sleep because it will alert me. It'll send off this alarm. If only you had it for the first baby. I know. Lucy is her name. <laughs> but what I love about this is that there's actually no physical contact made with your baby like other smart monitors. Oh, I hate when a monitor is groping my baby. Right? They, the baby might have to wear a sock or put a little band around their Ugh. chest. It's weird. But the Miku Pro Smart Baby Monitor, it uses sensor fusion technology, which is like a military-grade technology that works with your smartphone to alert you of changes to your baby's vitals, their breathing, and the nursery conditions. It is high tech. It's like having Bill Gates and Steve Jobs watching your baby at all times. In a less creepy way. <laughs> Maybe that's not ideal. And speaking of people watching your baby, Shane, what? thanks for reminding me. Yeah. Nobody's going to watch your baby because oh. they have crypto security, which means that it can't be hacked. There, there's no hacking with this type of monitor, which is a concern when you get into the field of Wi-Fi oh. monitors. I don't think I've ever been hacked and I want to keep it that way with me and my child. Absolutely. This monitor also offers HD video and photo, great night vision, and custom dual Ole Wolf speakers, a two-way microphone, which means Miku not only plays original sleep sounds and lullabies, but allows you to talk to and comfort your baby like if they wake up in the middle of the night. So head on over to MikuCare.com and use the promo code FAMILYTREE10 for 10% off. This is available in the US only. And again, that is MikuCare.com and FAMILYTREE10. No other monitor is a Miku. And now let's get back to our interview with Aaron. Yeah, no, and, and I do think that is so important. And, you know, the types of people that are going to call C 
CAS or something uh, because they see like kids at a park alone or just hanging out in the neighborhood. That is also worrying. And it is bull. Like, you know, you think of, especially in Canada, you live in Canada as well. Obviously, we're hanging out last week. But like you think of indigenous families, black families in Canada, people will they statistically call the cops more on oh, those targeted. parents, yeah. right? 100%, yeah. And it's Way like, more vulnerable to judgment. Yeah, and it's like to be um, in that position as a mother, then how do you do that? Because like, you know, maybe you want to be more of a free-range parent, but you probably still have a lot of rules and things at your own house. But then it's like how how do you – shift that to meet, you know, the perception of the people around you. And that is, that is so hard and it's so unfair. And just, just having this conversation, I'm thinking of that because like, I'm already stressed about it. I couldn't imagine being in that position and being stressed about it. And I think that's something we all need to cool it on because like Mm -hmm. before I had kids, I was the most judgmental parent before I had children that has calmed down a lot. Everybody is. (laughs) I know. Mm -hmm. I know. I've said to people, the best parents are the people who don't have kids because they've never done anything wrong. They've never had any regrets. Like, that's just how it works. But you know, it's a hundred percent that because I think like I am a uh, like white middle-class straight cisgender, like mm-hmm. least marginalized person yeah. with the exception of being a woman. We all, but you know what I mean? Like yeah, generally absolutely. speaking, yeah. very little, stack, very little stacked against me, a lot of privilege in my life. Um, and I still worry about like someone's going to call on my kids because mm-hmm. they're unsupervised or you know something like that. That people are going to judge me that way. So I can't imagine you being in the store and somebody being like, "Oh, your kid's overdressed" or whatever. You know what I mean? Like if we're if we're getting that, like yeah. But if I was a single mom who had to let my kids be a little more free, like the way my mom did, like she didn't leave us alone after school because she was like whatever. It was because there wasn't a second parent yeah. and she was working. And yeah, if I was um, like a visible minority, where you know that if my kids were black, they would, there's more likely, there's much higher of a chance that somebody's going to call and be like, there's these kids running around the park. Like I, I am aware of that for sure. But that's what, that's why I kind of am flippant when I go like these jerks who call, because I really don't think it's people who are truly concerned about the kids. They're people who are so. like annoyed that children are running free. And they think they know better and they think that worried. they would do parenting differently or better. And I think that's the bottom line. Or they think they did it differently 20 years ago or whatever. So, and yeah. it's not to like with broad strokes, like there's a lot of people who like will see kids out at the park and go like, good, like, like, like you know, that's good. That's how we used to be. But there, there are the people who kind of go like, oh my God, your kid's more than 12 feet away from you. <laughs> no, <laughs> so, okay. I was reading the uh, synopsis for your book on Indigo and there was one review there that I, I thought was really great. They said, this is easily the most validating book you'll read this year. So I wanted, I want to talk about validation and the importance of validation in motherhood. Um, but, but for you, why is validation important in motherhood? Oh, I think it's so important because it there's, it's so easy for moms to feel like they're doing it wrong. You know, and I'm talking about the best moms, like the most amazing moms. It's so easy for them to feel like they're doing it wrong. And that's could be because of the, criticism they get from their family or from external or from just from their self or you know going on social media and looking at kind of that like curated feed of everyone else's lives and going like oh I'm not doing it that way and forgetting that that's like a highlight reel and not real life um so I think it's so important what I really wanted to do with this book was go you know 
here are some things that I'm really proud of that I think I've done a good job in parenting. And it's not like a boastful thing, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of like, you know, here's some, some stuff that happened that was kind of funny or it was good. But a lot of it is me talking about here's this part that was hard or here's this part that I didn't expect. And here's this thing that I wish more people talked about because I would have liked to read a book like that and go, Oh, what's happening is really normal and what's happening and what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. And that's why it's called send me into the woods alone because it's, it's very tongue in cheek, obviously, but the idea, and that's a, a short essay in the book. It's kind of a, one of the more brief essays, but the idea is that you can love your kids and your family and your life with every fiber of your being and be like, I wouldn't change a thing about this. And yeah. that's how I feel about my family. I love that I had them young. I love my kids. They're like the coolest kids. Like I'm always like, I can't believe these kids are mine. They're so awesome. My husband is amazing. And there are still days where I'm just like, oh my God, I just want to be by myself in the woods for like 48 hours where nobody (laughs) asks me for a glass of apple juice or tells me to fill out a form or like where I'm having to be like, oh, I'm working. So I'm neglecting my kids or now I'm like being with my kids. So I'm neglecting my job because in the pandemic in particular, that was a a big struggle, right? Because we were just double full timing, if not triple timing everything. Oh, crazy. anything you focused on, you knew you were ignoring two to three other things. And sometimes those were your children. Um, <laughs> it's not ideal. No. Uh, so I think validation is so big just to go, Hey, when you want to like run into the woods by yourself for a day or two, like that doesn't make you a bad mom or a bad person that makes you human. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean you don't love your kids. And it doesn't mean you want to change your life. Cause that's the big thing is, is some people go like, if you feel that way, like, you know, something's going to change. And it's like, well, no, sometimes it's mm-hmm. just, you need a little break mentally. Um, and I don't actually want to run away from my family. I love my family. But <laughs> Only I, sometimes. I totally you know? cool with a weekend away. <laughs> like everyone needs that, dads included. Need it. You need it. And even like I like I like getting away as a couple because then it gives us a chance to reconnect and do things not with the kid. And then, and then it, you know, I feel like personally – like I like to do that because then I feel like I'm sharing the experience and we can talk about it after and be like, oh, remember that amazing weekend when the kids were at home and it was just us and it's so great. When I think about validation, I think of, you know, there are so many pros and cons to social media, but a huge pro for me is that I got a lot of validation from the motherhood, the parenthood community. Obviously, there's always people that are going to chime in and chirp and, you know, be negative, but I got so much validation. Anytime I was struggling with something, I'd put it out there and I'd get lots of great feedback and I'd meet people to commiserate with, to vent with, and then to talk about the joyous things with. And and to me, it's like, it was odd to get so much validation uh, from a group of strangers from different countries, but it was also so cool. But for you, were you validated? Did you feel validated as, as, as a new mom? And where where did you get that validation from? Well, I don't think I even had Instagram until my daughter was like four or five. Because if you think of like, when did it come out? When did it become a thing that we all had? I mean, my daughter's turning 11. So I definitely, like, even like you with TikTok, I'm like, it didn't, it makes me feel so old. We're like, probably not that far off in age. But I'm like, there were no TikTok moms when I had a baby. So I didn't, there were mommy blogs. And they were, I say mommy blogs. That's what everyone called them at the time. Like the biggest thing too. Yeah. And so that was a thing where I actually read them a lot more before I had a baby because I was very much like, 
interested in the idea of motherhood because I was like, I want to have a baby. So I wanted to know more about like kind of the experience. And I loved reading those firsthand accounts. And then I stopped reading them a lot when I had a baby of my own because it became a thing where it's so all consuming to have a child, but also you realize you do do things your own way. So I think I read them less, which is funny now that I'm a parenting writer because it's like, I'm like, read my stuff. But I don't know where my validation came from. I think a lot of it came from within in the early years where I was just like, I had to trust that I was doing a good job. And in my kids and being like, like I said, they're they're good people and Mm -hmm. they're turning out well and I must be doing something right. But I'm kind of glad it worked out that way because by the time I had like an Instagram and, you know, like, and I was watching like parents on Instagram do that kind of public parenting. And I had a good sense of like, what would make me feel good and what would make me feel bad. And that's like what you're talking about. You found the good, you found Mm -hmm. this really validating community where you felt like you were lifted up by Mm -hmm. them and you could relate to them. And it was just like, I'm not alone. But then there's the other side of it where it's like, if you're the, the new mom that hasn't found that, and they're just seeing those perfect, perfect little slides. And you're like, that's not how I'm feeling. And because think of like, I know you had um, like Sarah Nicole Landry on the show mm-hmm. not too long ago. Yes. No one was showing their bodies like she does yeah. 10 years ago. And now a lot of people do it. And so when you think of like being postpartum years ago and there's that whole bounce back culture and you think of all the tabloid magazines were all like women who'd had a baby five minutes ago yeah. in bikinis. Look how great they look. Like, and it's like how they did it. They just breastfed and you're like, what the hell? And so, and now it's a different situation where it's like, some people look like that and that's Mm -hmm. totally valid and other people don't. And that's okay too. And like, why don't we talk about everybody's body being different and that it matters more to some people than others. Like some people are really upset that they have stretch marks. And if they feel that way, I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. Like I, I think you're beautiful, but like, I'm not going to tell you your feelings aren't valid. But yeah, stuff like that just wasn't around at the time. I'm glad that it's changed the way it is where there's still that glossed over kind of garbage that you have to avoid. But there are a lot of really cool people being really honest and like doing stuff more like you're doing with a sense of humor and (laughs) kind of like, you know, showing like the light side as well as, as well as the serious stuff. But yeah, that's the the thing I think I hope people find is Mm -hmm. the stuff that makes them feel good. Absolutely. Well, even, you know, thing about stretch marks. So like I got stretch marks on my thighs, lots of them. And on the backs of my knees when I was like 14, just mm-hmm. from growing a puberty, like out of nowhere. Yeah. Which so many people do. Yeah. And, but the, I mean, I didn't talk about that with my friends. I would cry about it to my mom, to my mom. I'd be like, mom, like what's, what's going on? Why is this happening? Like I'm only 14. I don't get it. I didn't talk about it with my friends. Cause it was like a source of embarrassment almost. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I never spoke about it with anybody other than my mom and my dad. And, it, that was like Aaron. Like I wore shorts. Like I would never wear a bathing suit bottoms in front of people. Like I always had shorts or pants on or like a sarong. I was always so concerned, like so obsessively concerned with. And them. at like fourteen, right? You it's said? so unhealthy. Yeah, and it, again, that didn't even honestly. Like aside from this conversation, I haven't even really thought about it or thought about them or taken measures to cover up or not put them on display, I guess, is since, I mean, definitely since I had kids, like I just haven't given a shit. I don't care. Like it's not even on my radar. 
And that's not to say that I haven't struggled with postpartum body or anything like that. Because again, that's like every day, right? Some days can be great. Some days can be tough. But it, it does seem it does seem better now. And I, I think in a large part of that can be attributed to people like Sarah Nicole Landry and, you know, just other people online that are just being open about it and being like, hey, I look like that too. This is cool. Let's accept it. Let's just deal with it. And dealing with it, a lot of, for a lot of people and me included, just like, ignore it. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with me or my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's a bit of a pendulum swinging back though. Because if you think of when I was like a tween and a teenager, so I was born in 84. So if you think of like late 90s, early 2000s, there was a terrible time in media where it was like, you would be like, look at this celebrity who's super fat. And then it would be like Kate Winslet, who's like gorgeous or something like that, where it'd be like, like they would have a very, like what people would consider a very desirable body. But in the nineties, they were hideous because it was like the Kate Moss years and whatever. And I remember like, well, you'd read like 17 magazine and it would be like, this person's anorexic. And then the article would just all be like, here's how to be anorexic. Like, let me tell you all the things they do, but it would be kind of um, shrouded in this like, oh, isn't it terrible? Isn't it terrible that they're eating Kleenex and not doing all this stuff? And really it it was like a guidebook on how to be. And that was the media that we grew up with. And so now these people are in their thirties. And I think with the pendulum is swung where the people who grew up with that attitude, where it's like, if you had hips or boobs, you were fat. And if you, your body wasn't perfect and God forbid you had cellulite or a stretch mark or anything, those people are now kind of going the other side where they're they're really body positive and or even body neutral. And there's a lot more acceptance because people just, I think, got sick of it because it was so unattainable. And I mean, my daughter being like 11 almost, and I, I she's like, she has no concept of her body at all. She's a tiny person. She's like, like a bird. She's just like really <laughs> tiny. Like she's like a stick figure, but we never talk about her weight because I don't want her to start thinking like I'm skinnier than my friends or like, or when she hits the beauty of her body changes, I don't want her to start being like, I don't her value to be tied up in that. Like if her body changes in any way. So I don't see as much of that in the media as we used to, but I think that all these moms right now who are talking about stretch marks and about body and like put on the bikini and everybody's a bikini body. We're the people that grew up with that whole hey don't eat Kleenex wink wink like yeah that would be bad of you and I I still Mm -hmm. see some magazines kind of holding on to that like there I I was showing I was in shoppers recently maybe like a month ago and there was a magazine Mm -hmm. that was doing the thing that they used to do and I honestly haven't seen one this bad since like 10 years ago 15 years ago and it was like what is this it, it stood out like a sore thumb whereas before it was very much the norm stood out like a sore thumb and like looking inside, I mean, it was horrendous. The, what they were writing, I'm like, who are these Just people writing these things? Yeah. Like, how can anybody, th- this is a sad, sad human that is writing these captions. This is a sad editor that is putting this through. This is a sad person that owns this magazine and is feeling like this is the only way that they can make money or that these are the only interesting stories. It's, no, it's, it's horrendous. So, you know, when it comes to online stuff, obviously, hopefully things continue, continue shifting towards the positive and towards just people feeling seen and again, validated and like their experience 
is is more normal. But uh, one thing that I, w- I want to touch on and ask you about, because you do mention that you talk about this in your book, is the whole wine mom phenomenon. So I, I want oh, your take yeah. on that. Yeah. Okay. So this one is, I think it's, it's such a nuanced subject. Like it's so hard to talk about it quickly, but I will, I will give it my best effort. <laughs> Sorry, Aaron. So, but, I'm like, here's my elevator pitch. So I drink wine. I like wine. I don't drink a lot of wine. I don't think it's bad to drink wine. I think if you're somebody who loves a good wine, that's awesome. And I like to go out with my friends and enjoy a glass and I have my favorites and everything. So it's not anti-drinking. It's not anti-wine. What I hate is the idea that wine is a tool that we need to get through motherhood because it's so bad and it's so hard and so miserable that we should all be drunk just to survive. And that's kind of like, and it's very tongue in cheek and people put out these things about like wine, it's wine o'clock and like, you know, mommy's juice cup and whatever, and all the wine mom stuff. And like, you know, the first thing you hear when it's like, you've had a long day with your kids is kind of like, you know, don't worry, you'll pour a big glass after they go to bed. And I'm like, I'm happy to go out. Like I'll go out with my friends and drink wine and have a great time. I don't do it to escape my children or my life. Like I don't do it as a coping mechanism because being a mom is so hard that I need to go out and pound wine. And I think it really minimizes and kind of brushes off um, people who have actual drinking problems. And a lot of those people are parents or people who don't have drinking problems that say they're really genuinely struggling in motherhood. And instead of getting support or the answers they need, it's like, go pour yourself a glass of wine. You'll be okay. What you need is a spa day and a drink. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'll hand you a glass, that kind of thing. So it's just this culture that has gone from this kind of cutesy, like, Oh, moms love to drink wine or that's what moms do at play dates to slowly that becomes ignoring actual problems that mothers have and actual struggles that they're facing um, and kind of minimizing like addictions in a way because you can be a mom and enjoy wine and I'm one of those people but when I have a hard day I don't want someone to tell me that the answer is to go Mm -hmm. have a drink no absolutely well how was your day why was it hard what can I do to help all of Mm -hmm. these things are better like anything freaking drop off dinner like anything yeah that's all better than me like dropping off like a new cup that says hashtag mom life or yeah Yeah. it's those things anyway I think on a very shallow level the the whole you know the fact you can get apparel and goods and everything like it's just cringy it's very cringy I think on a very shallow level. Yeah. It's just like kind of being like, oh, you're a mom now. So like, you're going to need this. And I'm like, wait, what? Like what? I didn't understand. And I mean, I'm somebody who I don't drink a lot like day to day. Like Mm -hmm. I, and I don't think it's I have friends who love to have a glass of wine after work or like every weekend. I'm someone who, if I go to a party, I might have two glasses of wine and then I might not have a glass of wine for a month because I'm just not a Mm -hmm. frequent drinker. Yeah. So it's something where everyone is different. Like you can be a healthy, happy person and drink a lot more than I do. The problem I have and the thing that really makes me cringe and upsets me a bit um, is when it's sold to us as like the answer to our problems. And I'm like, no, I want to go have a a glass of wine at a party because I'm having a good time or because I found a really nice bottle of wine and I want to enjoy it with my husband over a nice meal. It's not the wine that's the problem. It's the culture around wine and motherhood where it's like, you need this to, to survive and to get through and kind of like just normalizing 
problems and saying like, oh yeah, like things are shit. Just yeah. drink. I, 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 I totally agree. I, it's, it's how it's sold to you, to us. And it's saying, you know, you're not going to be able to live up to the expectations of being a mom or being a working mom or being a stay-at-home mom or being a mom and a friend. So may as well just drink your way through it. It's going to make everything better. And obviously yeah. it doesn't. We're speaking of this like, or just positioning it as like self-care, which is such a big topic in motherhood where, and I've written about self-care like for today's parent and different things. And, you know, self-care is important if you look at it for what it really is. But if you look at it from the kind of commercialized capitalist, like self-care is wine and manicures and, and, you know, buying yourself a day and facials, whatever. Uh, It's not that I don't like those things. Like I love getting Mm -hmm. a facial. I would love a spa day but it doesn't solve my problems. And wine is the same thing where it's just like, I, I want to, I wish that I could just separate it for all women and be like, you can love facials. You can love a good bottle of wine. That is awesome. I am that person too. But if you're having a bad day and you need to talk to somebody and their answer is to go like, yeah, like here, just drink up and you'll get through it. Like today's tomorrow's a new day. And it's like, yeah, it's just it, wine shouldn't be a tool. And I say wine, but I'm harping on it because that's what's attached to motherhood. Like they never say like whiskey mom. Like oh, it's yeah. it's alcohol in general. But yeah. the culture really does seem to be around wine as a tool that you need to survive motherhood. Whereas motherhood is like the most joyful thing in my life, even though it's hard and it's not something that I have to medicate myself, like self medicate to survive. And that does such a disservice to my children and to all of our kids to act like they're this burden that we have to be drunk to like get through the day with them. And I'm like, imagine being a kid growing up like with this culture of mothers and being like, Oh, right. Yeah. I remember my mom always had this class that basically said I'm drinking to get through the day with you. And like, I, it's like Lucy and like our kids see us drink. Cause we, we, every Wednesday we open a bottle and we um, do a date night. So we drink on Wednesdays and then we'll probably have drinks. like for sure on the weekend and then whenever but the thing is it doesn't matter like I can come home and have a glass of wine you know to help me relax after a hard day am I looking to the bottom of the glass to say solve my problems for me or fix this my life is hard right now hell no I'm sitting there and enjoying something that I like to just you know, as a as a part of my evening relaxation, maybe while I talk it out with my husband or talk it out with my girlfriends or something. Yeah. But we can't look to anything like this to solve problems. And, and I think there's a huge issue there. And I, I totally agree with you. And I hate when things are marketed to mothers because you were also vulnerable at every point in motherhood. Yeah. From the second you pee on that strip, you are in a vulnerable vulnerable position, I feel like, for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. Yeah. It's a cop-out because if you look at the way it's been, not to get like super political, but like back in the day, women were just supposed to be mothers. They weren't supposed to work. It was frowned upon. Like, don't even try to have a career. You were a mother. That was obviously problematic. But then, you know, we get to have all these gains um, in our careers. And but we're not parenting any less than we were 50, 70 years ago. Like you're just now doing a full-time job and being a mom all the time, constantly. So there's so much more pressure on women. Women's lives have changed so much more than men's lives have. And instead of being like, let's like even it out a bit, let's change the balance, which would be good for everybody and women and all parents and all kids. But instead of being like, wow, women have 
crazy unrealistic expectations on them. And there's these standards that are impossible to meet. And that has like, you know, a weight on women on their mental health and on like kind of their feeling of like, am I doing a good job at this? Like, let's just throw all of that aside and be like, oh, just have a drink. So, and they just treat it like it's this life preserver. So that's my real issue with it. And that's what I write about in the book is that it's like, I think it's good for kids to see their parents drinking responsibly because I think it sets a good example. One hundred, like to be yeah. like, I have a glass of wine, but I don't have five. Mm-hmm. Or that I've even told my kids, like, you know, they like, why did you drive home from the party? And I'll say because they'll notice, like, my husband and I went out from whatever and like why did you drive home and I'll say well because daddy had like two beers and I didn't have a drink so just like you know alcohol makes it so it's not a safe to operate a car so I'm saying daddy's not drunk but it would be safer for me to drive and I try to model that kind of like safe behavior around alcohol where I'm not like it's bad don't have it they see us drink alcohol just not excessively and just not as a coping mechanism I don't want them to have that view of as a, it's a problem solver. Yeah, and and I think that's that is so important. I'm so glad that you do hit on that in your book because it's it's vital. No, it's vital to talk about. But Aaron, I feel like I need a part two with you because there are still so many things that I wasn't able to touch on, and I'm really excited to. I've really enjoyed this conversation. But where can listeners go to to get your book? When when can they buy it? So it's officially out in April, but pre-sales are open now, so you can so buy it right now. I'll be signing up. <laughs> Thank you. So it's called Send Me Into the Woods Alone. Uh, Essays on Motherhood is the subtitle uh, and by Erin Pepler. And it's available in the U.S. at Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's on their website for pre-sale. It's available in Canada through Indigo and on Amazon and through my publisher, Invisible Publishing. And it's uh, in the U.K. and a couple other places. So you won't get your copy in the mail till April, but you can, if you would like to. <laughs> this is this is like my awful pitch where I'm like, if you want to and you're and yeah, you can go buy it. Hell yeah. We're sales <laughs> so Honestly, I, I, I really love your take on things. It was so easy to talk to you. And I think that, you know, listeners like go sign up, go get pre-sale because you, this is a book just from talking to you that I know that I want to read. I know I want more of your take on things. And this is why, Erin, we need a part two. And I, I'm saying that now. I knew this was a good connection to make at that party. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> but I promise, I, I feel like I should put a disclaimer. I'm a better writer than I am talker because I'm such a rambly talker. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you want me back on again because I'm like the queen of tangents and just like, you know, in my head all the time, just rambling. But yeah, I'm, I'd be happy to come back anytime. We've got lots Girl, to talk about. This is a podcast. That's all podcasts are. So <laughs> it's perfect. But truly, Erin, it was so nice to meet you last week. And it was really nice to get to know Me you too. a little bit better today. But until next time, take care. Nice David Bowie in the background, by the way. That's my pencil case. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you did it. You did it again. Well, I'm so happy that our cross pa- our paths crossed. No, your cross paths too. <laughs> I feel so grateful for that. Uh, and again, it was actually it's super cool because we met at a pool party that was being hosted by former podcast guest Julie Cole and podcast supporter. She owns Mabel's Labels. So we were both at this Small pool party, world. right? And it was just so fun. And truly, the conversation was amazing. I need to have Aaron back and I want to get into it a little more with her. Do you know what else is amazing? What? The fact that we have Emma Wiggle, Danielle Fischel from Boy Meets World yes. coming up on a future episode. I know. That's huge. Shane, that's on you. I know. But I just, you thought I was going to introduce your mailbag segment. So I wanted to throw in something different. Well, but we do have, we do have a mailbag <laughs> segment coming up. 
And it's coming up right now, in fact. And this is where Alex takes listener questions and she actually researches them and answers them if she doesn't know them offhand. I am along for the ride. I may be asked upon to contribute. Let's see what happens. All right. So the first question relates a lot to your open, Shane. The person says, how are you feeling after this trash week? And then reading this question. How did they know our week was trash? I know. Reading this question made me think, oh, man, have I been that negative on social media this week? I don't know. Or maybe they're saying trashed week because they heard that you had one drink too many on date night. So let me go over what did happen this week because it was pretty trash. So I had a bad work week, man. Like just every day was tough, was full of different challenges, and it really tested my patience, tested my limits. You you downplayed it off the top. I guess that's because you wanted to save it for your section here. Well, I did. Off the top, you acted like it was a better week. But yeah, continue, well, continue. Uh, Lucy's eyebrow got split open. Oh my goodness. Right? That Shane, was this week? That was on Tuesday. That was so I came off, remember I came off that really tough work day. My really goodness. tough work day. And then uh that happened. Wow. I know. I can't believe we didn't talk about that up the top. Our little girl got glue in her like instead of stitches, like glue. Oh, that was terrifying. It was awful. So I was in the kitchen getting dinner ready. Betty was in her high chair. Lucy was sitting on the couch, like kind of playing on the cushions. And then Shane was going towards Lucy to get her to bring her into dinner. And as he's going, he's going, Lucy, don't do that. Don't do that. And then all of a sudden, you just hear a bang. You hear Lucy scream. Shane goes, oh my God, that was a hard one. And he runs in here. He picks Lucy up. I don't really flinch. I don't, like, you guys are walking toward me. And then Shane... You just look mm-hmm. at me and you go, Alex, this is a bad one. Mm-hmm. And then you take a peek and you go, there's a lot of blood. And your face was like yeah. white. Like you looked hollow. So I was like, okay. I tried to keep my cool. I didn't want to worry Lucy and I didn't want her to get panicked. So we looked at it and it was honestly, guys, it was so disgusting. The the front, like, I don't know, do you call this the front of the eyebrow? By the nose. Uh, it was... Flap split open by three millimeters, which is you know, that's a big laceration, but it was like a flap, like there were the two flaps of skin and they were really thick, like this. The corner of our coffee table really went in there, and she was bleeding a lot. She was screaming, she knew it was bad. She's like, I have to go to the hospital. How does she say it? Yeah, the hops, the hops, yeah, hospital. And I'm not coming back tonight. They're not going to let me come back tonight. I'm like, they will. They will. And she's cuddling in like we're trying to hold, put pressure on the cut. And she's going, I'm in pain. I'm in so much pain. And like, I'm so glad she can communicate, you know, her, how she's feeling that well. But it was obviously breaking her heart. So we called my mom. Shane took over with Betty. He put Betty to bed while my mom dropped me and Lucy off at the emergency room and Lou was like such a champ guys in the hospital. She was so good. She was so patient. Doctor comes in. We didn't have to wait too long, thankfully. And it just so happened that the night we were there, they had a visiting doctor from a children's hospital working in their emergency room. So he was like able to talk to Lucy in a way that, you know, she would respond to and she really felt safe, but they had to glue 
her eyebrow. I've never heard of skin glue before, but they skin glued her eyebrow together. So he said, no matter what, she's going to have a, you know, a noticeable scar there. But she was such a champ when he was like, he, it was so gross. He had to hold the two flaps of skin together and like press them together. And that must've hurt so bad. And then he put the glue on and Lou was really good until the glue went into the cut because apparently it stings. But I mean, even after that, she was so good, you know, and then she showed it off at daycare and stuff. But yeah, gross. Anyhow, more things that happened this week. All right. Lucy's put her brow open. I was, you know, back and forth messaging with preschool because I was nervous that Lucy was getting bullied by a kid. So I was worried about her making friends and everything. So that was me and the preschool going back and forth. Major tiredness after date night, like as we mentioned off the top, for the entirety of the next day and also Friday. Everybody in the family is currently sick. I'm not. You were, I thought, though, a couple days ago. No, I said I'm sick of this BS, and then I (laughs) threw the asparagus plate against the wall. What reference is that? (laughs) Kevin Spacey. In what? Oh, American in, in Beauty. American Beauty. That's the second time you've made that reference I know, this week. I know. I keep trying to get you to have like <laughs> some sort of recall to be like, oh, that's a callback. Ugh, my goodness. Well, Shane, my brain is broken. Um, yeah. So everybody's sick then, not Shane. The girls in the house are sick. Me, Betty, and Lucy were all incredibly stuffed up. Like we all have a sinus thing. It's gross. Oh, I thought you were adding something. I agreed. And then lastly, again, as you know, something we touched on, these renovations are just costing more money than we anticipated. And Not that's... that anyone will take our money because yeah. we can't <laughs> give it away. It just can't be done. And people are refusing to do the work. <laughs> They're like, maybe in a decade this will be possible. But as for now, the hole can't be any bigger. Which is baloney. I refuse to accept that. So, yeah, you know what? It is a bit of a trash week. But how am I feeling right now? I'm happy. I'm Next happy. Next week will be better. Next week will be better. But as for this weekend, you know, trying to be grateful for things, I'm feeling happy. I'm feeling exhausted and I could fall asleep right now for the night. Uh, but we had a great day. Like we went to a farm. We did a lot of outside stuff with the kids today. And it just like it really just felt like a fall weekend day. And then I was talking to Shane about how exciting this time of year is until the day after New Year's. Because it's nonstop party and festive. Like, everything's festive starting now. We got ball fairs for the next month and a half. We got Halloween. Then right after Halloween, like, I'm not wasting any time. We are going Christmas immediately after. Like, the beginning of November. Because we've been dealing with COVID for two years. We deserve all the Christmas festivities. And two months isn't long enough. I agree. I may not sleep tonight after this after what? This pep talk. I'm amped. <laughs> I got basically three months of full throttle like family cheer on my hands. You do. I'm super excited for it. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know what? How am I feeling? Happy and exhausted. Shane, how are you feeling after this trash week? How do I feel after a trash week? Yeah. Uh, I feel like next week is going to be actually be a hard one for me. There's a lot going on. Yes. It's like an interview almost every day. I'm supposed to watch Bachelor in Paradise with a friend. Oh, jeez. I I have a table read. I've got another. I have to go to Toronto for the first time to work. It's a lot. I know. Let's see how it goes. 
I know. And Nona's sleeping over two nights in a row. Oh, that's helpful. And then Which Nona's nights? Tuesday and Wednesday. That's good. Well, we have friends coming over on Tuesday to watch uh, Bachelor in Paradise. Well, we can just have a whisper rule. <laughs> no, no, no. She doesn't go to sleep until later anyway. But and then it's Nona's birthday on Thursday. So her and your dad oh are going to hang goodness. out a little later and we're going to be ordering fancy food. Oh, yeah. Wait, did we just schedule an interview for Thursday? Um, Emma. Is that Wednesday, though, or Thursday? That would be Thursday night. That's what you asked for Thursday, but we can do it on Wednesday night. Let's do it we on Wednesday. We just can't have date night. Right. No, we'll do, uh, well, no, we'll, we'll have a date night after the interview. Or see, because the Emma interview, <laughs> <laughs> I love how we're working this out on the air. It wouldn't happen till 830 at night because in Australia they're ahead. Right. So theoretically the birthday party with Nona could be over. Oh, yeah, it would be because the girls are in bed at six. Yeah. All right. Done. Settled. We just have to make sure we have the questions and everything in order. So, guys, and and this is great for everybody because now you get a date night this week. And Shane and I get another chance at figuring out how to go out on the town and still be people the next day. (laughs) Wait, I meant date night in the sense we can just go out. I didn't mean we can record a date night. Are you suggesting we do an hour-long interview with Emma Wiggle, then do a 30-minute? No. Then how do we record the date night episode? Why are you promising people On Wednesday. Oh, right. (laughs) <laughs> ah wow okay shane this week is nonstop. yes it is i have to write out a schedule <laughs> well, welcome to behind the curtain of this family tree <laughs> okay no the next question goes well with this though okay yeah how do you keep from getting burnt out <laughs> so so i i will say mine first but you know first of all and i haven't been doing this lately and it really does impact how i'm feeling if i don't do it Working Being nice out. with your husband. Okay, never mind. <laughs> when, when I work out, I talk about it on this podcast. I like feel like a million bucks. I feel great. I haven't been working out lately, and that does take a toll. However, I think right now it's a little bit better because I am leaving for work every day, and a part of my job I have to go and supervise the school for like, you know, an hour and a half at a time in between teaching. And it's constant walking. Even when I'm teaching, it's constant walking around. And so I feel like I'm having very active days. But it's just, I miss that like hard sweat, you know. But next, uh, date night. If we really let loose on a date night, I burn so much steam. Like Shane, as tired as I was on Thursday, I felt like a million bucks. Could you tell? Like my whole mood shifted. I feel like so much weight was lifted off my shoulders. That date night truly just set me up for feeling impeccable Thursday. And I I, I feel like somebody pressed like a restart button in my body and in my brain. And all the fog I had, any tension I had, everything was just like lifted and, you know, just building up from scratch again. But I, I, I felt amazing. And then I think another huge thing is variety. So if you have a variety in what you're doing or you can somehow create a variety and like this is by, you know, sharing the workload with your partner, the parenting load with your partner, if you are able to do so, 
I feel like that can help with getting burnt out because when I get most burnt out, it's like if I'm on only parenting duty for day after day, hour after hour, and then it's like same thing, same thing, same thing. At least now, even though it's more incessant, you know, it's like wake up, parent, go to go to work and teach, come home, parent, kids in bed, podcast. It's incessant, but the variety helps kind of keep things fresh and my patience for each of those things renews kind of every day. But I don't know. What do you, what do you, how do you keep from getting burnt out? I don't know if I do. I find when you're, you're always feeling burnt out, it's hard to even know that you are burnt out. Right. So yeah, little, little breaks help. I don't know. I became addicted to motion and moving and things going on. If I'm sitting still for too long, sometimes that can stress me out because then I feel like I'm not doing stuff. So in a way, even sitting down to relax can be very stressful for me. Uh, so I'm not the best at getting advice from that. I, I was gleaning some something from what you were saying there. Oh, well, I'm curious. How did you feel after... You know, whether it's last Wednesday's date night or if we have a really good night Mm -hmm. where you and I are just like letting loose and having fun, does it make you feel better the next day mentally or worse because then you're like, oh, man, like now I'm tired. Now this is setting me back. You know, like what are your thoughts on that? Well, if it's a good date night, yes, it does. Do I consider the last date night to be successful and the fact that it helped my week? No, I felt like a million trucks <laughs> had run over me and then shot my flattened corpse with a <laughs> machine gun afterwards. I, like that's not helpful or productive to my week and it made me feel very behind. Mm. So that wasn't necessarily 100% worth it, although it was because it there wasn't that many repercussions. Mm-hmm. If that happened next, the week yeah. upcoming, I'd be ruined. Yeah, it can't, it can't. Something like that, though, a date night like that cannot happen more than once a month. Even once a month is stretching it. Like Once I'd say, a year. I know. <laughs> you kidding me? Oh, yeah. We felt awful. Yes. But I had the You best were all time. renewed, at least. And- well, that's what I'm saying. I was a uh, reset button. Like, I felt hmm. so good, Shane. Anyway. I was man nude. Manu, like manure? I guess. It's a stretch. <laughs> oh, yikes. <laughs> okay. All right. Next question. Would oh, you, oh, wait. What? And last week, Norm MacDonald died. Oh, I know. That's terrible. That, that like, yeah. one of the worst weeks ever. Yeah. For that reason alone. Okay. No. Big time. Uh, would you rather a pause button or a rewind button? I'm saying pause again to keep up with kind of what I'm saying all episode in that, you know, sometimes good moments can be so fleeting, especially if it's a really crappy week or a really crappy day. And then you have that one awesome moment. I'd want to pause that and enjoy that and have it like give me life to deal with all the bad moments. But like there's nothing I really want to rewind to. Like I... I don't care about going back. I'd rather I'd rather pause and have more time to enjoy the amazing moments when they come by. Pausing could be pretty cool if you could pause for let's say a year. Yeah. Get a year ahead of work. Shane. What? Then you take a year off. 
Oh, I like that. What do you think I'm going to say? I don't know. I just, just the thinking about work, you know, it's, it's just like goes with what but you were saying about you, how, you know, sitting still or anything like that, which is essentially a pause, or pause can stress for, you out. Pause for two years, get one year of work done. The other time you're just doing nothing. And then people think you're the most productive person in the world. And then you essentially get another year off because you've already done the next year of work. That's what I mean. Yeah. Pausing would be awesome. Yeah. No, yeah, because like rewinding, then it's you still have to go back and relive that crap week you had just because you had one good moment that you're rewinding to. Yeah. No, thanks. No, it's fine. And I got lots of good moments to come. So it's like, I, I don't need to rewind for them. But next, if you notice red flags in your friend's relationship with their spouse, how do you approach it? So I don't have any more details for this one. So I'm kind of assuming it's like red flags in a a cheaty way, maybe. So if this was the case, I just, you know, start start taking notes. Like, have I seen them out with somebody? You always weird? go cheaty. This could be microaggression type well, of. Well, this is, this is what I wanted yeah. you to comment on after. And I want you to be able to kind of say what you would do in another circumstance. Because this is where my mind goes. But I want to cover more bases here. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> I am. <laughs> okay. But I, I bring it up casually and I think this could be, you know, for whatever the problem is, like if it's a cheat thing, like, oh, you know, so-and-so has been going out a lot with the boys lately. Or if it is like a microaggression thing, like is something weighing on so-and-so because they really seem to be short-tempered lately and bring it up like that and then see if your friend, you know, confides in you at all. And then next, I just stay on high alert, whether it is, you know, for your friend's safety and health or for, you know, high alert, like for the safety of their relationship. What does high alert look like? (laughs) Seems like a quite broad statement. You know what? I think it could mean, and I think the most practical way in which you'd use it, it's like if your friend maybe started to say something or insinuated something – And if you weren't on high alert and you didn't notice any red flags, then you just kind of maybe that insinuation would just kind of float Hmm. by you and you wouldn't discuss it or more likely to catch an insinuation and interpret it in the right way. Yeah. 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 And then be there for them. So sorry. That's what I mean kind of by staying on high alert. But what would you do? I always am so direct, probably to a negative degree. So if if the question is, what do you do? Then I'll say I speak out early and often, usually too early, usually too often. (laughs) What should you do? Usually, I think these people will reveal themselves in time because in the first three months of any relationship, people are in that limerous period where they're just blinded by lust Mm -hmm. or that butterfly feeling. So it's good not to ruin their buzz and let them go through it because most people will reveal themselves and the relationship will end on its own terms anyway, and you can still be the good supportive friend. Unless your friend is particularly naive, maybe, and you Mm -hmm. think they won't notice it, and they'll maybe go too far into the relationship, and it could, I don't know, kids and marriage could happen, and you're trying to genuinely prevent that from happening because you think your friends will succumb to this person's 
whatever, manipulation, whatever mm-hmm. you think the problem is. So, yeah, what I do isn't always correct, but to me, that's what I do. And people know me for it. And I, it's part of my personality so much that I feel like it's not held against me as much as it would be if typically I was reserved. And have there been any notable times that you have said that to a friend and how'd they take it? Yeah, but, you know, bad. <laughs> Like, you know, I have JR, I, I, yeah. he had a, a, I mentioned it like on a second date, like, oh, I got a bad feeling about this or often. Yeah, I've, I've done it. I've done it a lot, like early, early, early. Mm-hmm. And some, these people, some, some cases are still together. Well, we just watched this situation happening in Ted Lasso. So Shane and I have been getting very into Ted Lasso, fantastic show, but they, they approached this in that show. So remember, Coach Beard is dating Jane. So this this one main character is dating another character that's rarely in the show. And nobody likes her. And they think she's manipulative. And she's all these things. And they're tr- they're debating, or one character is debating whether or not to tell him mm-hmm. that he thinks it's a bad move for them to remain dating. Yeah. And all the other people, they're like, nope, you don't say anything. You just got to let them figure it out. When this character said something... And then it just kind of happened to be nothing. And now you're kind of after the last episode, you're kind of rooting for his relationship with this person. Yeah. It's strange how that can happen. But but it's like that in real life too, right? Because maybe your friend does see red flags, but then they also don't see good things or they don't know the context behind those red flags. And people or, can change. Yeah. And the yeah. relationship could evolve. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. It's a tough call. There was one friend of mine, I won't say, but at a wedding, you'll know what I'm talking about. This this woman came up to me that my friend was in a relationship and started saying that you're the best I could do, all this, which is insulting <laughs> no, to you, no, too. It, was, it makes, makes you so feel bad. annoying, yeah. And it took everything in me to not say to her that, well, you're the best like uh, my friend that was dating you mm-hmm. is the best you'll ever do. And I really wanted to talk to that person and tell them how I just felt like this person wasn't a good person or whatever, like it gave me a bad vibe, a Nikki feeling. And they ended up breaking up through their own. But I I really trusted this person's instincts to discover these things anyway. Yeah. And now he's just, you know, in a great relationship. So happy. Yeah. But yeah, it's these things, uh, they work themselves out typically. No, they do. And, and, you know, I think that's going to be a tough thing to do as a parent though, too. Because, like, it's already tough to do as a friend. And you want, you know, you just, you want to trust your friend and you want to hope the best for them that they'll be able to figure these things out and you want to have the trust. And I think about that from a parenting aspect, like, trust that you're, because I know my parents put up with that, like, trust that I'll figure things out for myself if they don't like somebody that I'm dating. And I always did. But I think that's going to be tough with the kids. Like, are you, do you think you'll be able to keep it in with the girls or? No. No, you're going to say if you don't like somebody? I'll just say my vibe I get yeah. from them. And, and I'll I just think, say, look I think they this. need that, though. I think kids mm-hmm. need that sometimes, right? To know that, especially if you're close with your parents. But anyhow, next question. Do you think women should go to jail if they yes. falsely... Uh, oh, there's more. If they falsely accuse a man of rape. So, oh, sorry for my uh, preemptive joke it, there. I didn't right. know. No, yeah, now fine. I feel terrible. Um, so I, I was thinking a lot about this. And no, I ultimately don't think that they should go to jail for that. Uh, it is a rare thing that happens, but it, it obviously has happened. 
Although I think that the best solution, and Shannon, I want your take on this, would be having them do community service in one of two places. So either in a type of place like the bridge, which we like to support in Hamilton, which helps men who have gotten out of jail, helps them reintegrate into society and essentially learn empathy through that and how a charge, whether it is real or, you know, they were acquitted, whatever, whether, sorry, how that impacts literally every facet of their life from finding a home to finding work, being able to put food on their table. Like it really impacts every facet of your life. So to be in those situations, helping people trying to make this transition and just, you know, learning empathy for just what what a huge deal that is. Or some kind of community service where she's perhaps working with women who have been raped or have been assaulted and who haven't had justice delivered, whether it was because there was not enough evidence or because the court you know, was not in their favor. Like, we know how rape trials work and have worked historically. I hope things are starting to get better now. But historically, a lot of men do not get charged unless they're caught red-handed. So have somebody work in a place like this, volunteer, and find out what it's like for a woman that has been assaulted to not have her story believed. Because, you know, by doing something like that, falsely accusing somebody, you're only hurting the women, the women who have had something happen. And I, I think that's so detrimental. Yeah, it's prison time. I don't know. Like even I think anytime these things come out, you're yes, if it comes out and you're convicted, you're punished in the courts and you go to prison. But if you don't, you're all, you're already you probably are considered unemployable, depending how far this this thing is circulated. So it really hurts you in that sense. So if this woman or these women who make false accusations had to publicly decree that they lied, they would almost be just as big as a pariah yeah. as the, the the men, you know? So I think any jail punishment wouldn't be as impactful as being publicly shamed in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then is there learning from shaming or is there just more defense that gets put up? So like, I think that the way to possibly hopefully change their behavior, because isn't yeah, that- Yeah, you're right. I'm just thinking, sorry, do you know what the way I'm looking at this, which isn't the right way at all? What's that? How to punish it the fairest way. And that's uh, not the way to look at it. You see, you look at things from like a redemption standpoint, which mm-hmm. is the right way to look at things. And because this is kind of sprung on me, I know <laughs> I, I know that in this segment, it is supposed to be sprung on me, but you know, throw me a bone. We can, we can just <laughs> pretend that I'm coming up with this up the top of my dome, but yeah, everything you said is absolutely correct. And I am you know, not intelligent. <laughs> no, 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 but Shane, I, I, I still like your answer. I think that- No, ta- it's not a good answer. No, but I, I think talking about these things and talking, just seeing where somebody's mind works for this kind of thing, I think it will help people in conversation. And I, I, I think that it's only learning that comes from something like this in a conversation like this. So I think it's all good. We end him with a fun question or uh, <laughs> is this it? No, 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 no. I have, uh, I have two more. Ooh. Okay. So, Stu, well, this one's not really a question. It's more of a statement. So, I... I can handle those. Okay. <laughs> it's, I mean, 
The circumstances aren't totally fun either. Students from North Carolina have created a nail polish that can detect if your drink has been spiked. And that's all it says, which is not a question, but I think that it is so cool. So I just looked up other things that you can buy. Like if you go out to bars, if you have a teenage kid who, you know, maybe can start going to bars soon or something, just things things to do and other products you can get to stop or help stop your drink getting spiked. Of course, and I think we spoke about this last week, but the the university I went to, Western, in during Frosh Week, the first two weeks of school, there were 30 sexual assaults and women getting drugged. When you were going and there? assaulted. No, this this year. Wow. 30 in two weeks, Shane. Like crazy sexual violence on in my old residence in Medway. So I lived in Medway. Uh, it's MedSid. This like, was in the news? Yeah. All huh. over the news. So it's a double residence, MedSid. How come I haven't heard of this? You'd think this would be a bigger story where it would get to me. I haven't heard anyone talking about this. I have. Wow. I, I don't know if I told you it was my residence. but uh, So that's really scary. So 30 women in MedSid, I think Medway, have been sexually assaulted and drugged and everything like, really scary. And then one boy died, got killed, like murder, like unrelated to all this stuff. But it's just, Western has been a hellhole so far this month. Like it's really crazy. Anyhow, that's terrifying. That is so scary. A university should not be like that. Women in university should not have to worry about being treated like that. And then I was looking up at a, a study. It was a survey of U.S. universities. And of the students surveyed, just below 10% said that they had been, have they've had their drinks spiked at a bar or at a party, whatever. And of that, 1.4% of the students surveyed said that they had been the ones to spike a drink. And of course, these are only the ones admitting it. But it is just below 10%. That's more widespread than I thought. Are these people arrested when they're admitting in a survey that they're spiking no drinks? I have no idea how that works, honestly. And I think that obviously they'd be scared that they would be. And maybe that's why not all the people spiking drinks are admitting to it. Maybe that's why. Of course, that's why. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's way higher than that. No, I know. I know. Well, it's not just 1.4% of people spiking all yeah. the 10% drinks. But anyhow, of the 10% of people who had had their drinks spiked, 12.1% reported being the victims of unwanted sexual touching, and 5.4% reported what the study authors termed forced sexual intercourse. So rape, right? So it's severe. It's scary. Nobody, you don't want this to happen to anybody. But there are products to help. So the first, this nail polish. I don't know if it's out or if they're just like developing it now, but that is very cool. The nightcap, I see, I actually see advertisements for this all over Instagram. It's really interesting. So it's a scrunchie, like it's actually a practical item. It's a scrunchie. And then when you get a drink, you can take this part off your scrunchie and it sits over the top of your glass. And then you like put a straw through like a little straw hole in the middle and it covers your glass. So it's very cool. So there's that called the nightcap again. I think it was on Dragon's Den. And then there's another thing. It's called the spiky bottle stopper. So this is if you're drinking. It's pretty on the nose. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's for drinking uh, a beer out of a bottle or something. And it kind of like sits in the top like a cork. And then you put a straw through that or you can sip through that. But it like it just, you know, it makes it difficult to do anything. And then lastly, I mean, if you're in this position where you're going out or you have kids that are in, you know, seniors in high school or in university, don't have them accept drinks from people. 
like online it'll be like don't accept drinks from strangers don't accept drinks from acquaintances don't accept drinks from but guys what if you're watching you the know. drinks being made what if, if you're, you're watching if the you're bartender? watching it yeah. that's different but if somebody's coming up to you even if it's somebody you know oh, and, just and they just hand you, you one it. yeah do not accept it you have to see the bartender pouring it and you have to make sure you're not looking away for a second but it's, it's like so tip. scary. Yeah. yeah. Super scary. Do you know anybody that's ever been spiked? I probably do, but no one's ever told me that they yeah. have. No, no, it's, it's scary. Finally, last- have, Wait, have you ever been spiked? No. Hmm. No, but I know people that have. Have you ever suspected you might be spiked? Yes. Wow. Jeez. Yes. Terrifying. How do you get over any insecurities that you might have? Get married. <laughs> no, so for me, I think it's it's like facing them. I have to face my insecurities. So whether it is me like being insecure in my relationship or me being insecure with something on my body, like I've talked about a lot before, like uh, the stretch marks that I got on my butt and my thighs during puberty. I just want to hide them. Like I wouldn't wear shorts until a couple years ago in the summertime. I wouldn't wear like bathing suits in front of people. If I was at a pool party, I'd always have something covering. And it just comes down to me looking at this insecurity in the eye and being like, okay, this is it. Like really stretch marks. This is what's making me so insecure, really. And then kind of facing that, asking myself why I'm so insecure about it. And then challenging myself to not love it, but accept it. And challenging myself to be like, okay, we're going to wear shorts this summer. Okay, we're going to go to the beach and not have a sarong on the whole time. Things like that. And then slowly they fade away. Like I am 0% insecure about stretch marks now. Mm-hmm. 0%. And guys, like I went from being from the ages of 16 to 30 being 100% insecure and freaked out. And like even sitting with Shane, like if we were like sitting and I was wearing a skirt or like shorts, I'd always try to like place my hands in certain ways. So like he might not see them or something, but now 0% insecure. Like I just don't care. I don't think about it. Is that because you've reeled care. me in? You've caught this big no, fish? No, no. Cause I, I feel like, like I could go out with people and not care. Is that cause you're married and you know, there's no chance of you getting with some hottie? No, there's a lot of chances of me getting with some hottie, Shane. Alex. What? This is a family podcast. we got to keep the family together. <laughs> Can't be this family cheater. No, but I'm just saying, I think What do you mean you're just saying? You no, can't I throw think that regardless away. of the situation, I'm not, I'm. it's not a thing. It's just not a thing in my so life So marriage anymore. hasn't helped you at all get over these insecurities? Not that one. That one, I honestly think- a huge thing for me was motherhood and like having kids in the sense that I realized how insignificant. What about supportive husband encouraging you? Well, we've never had conversations about my stretch marks, really. Like, when have I ever been like, Shane, I don't want to go in public because of my stretch marks? Like, I think those things in my head, you, but I don't think I've ever voiced like it. Like that, and I've I've talked to you about it, and I I always reassure you that I don't even think of that stuff no i and i I, you know what then maybe you help more than because i know you i know you don't i don't know if it's been about stretch marks i just want some brownie points here and i want it to be acknowledged for the public to hear i want women everywhere to like me (laughs) no you're the best because you never know what could happen right (laughs) right as you would say 
<laughs> okay, well, here, another one of my insecurities rearing its ugly head, uh, jealousy and insecurity in the sense of, and like just totally irrational thought, like Shane, you know, having another relationship or like cheating on me or whatever. Imagine I had the time to do that. Wouldn't that be impressive? <laughs> Wouldn't that be unbelievable? Well, that's what would make it the perfect crime right now, Shane. And this is where my insecurities are because it's like, I think you don't have enough time. But then you go out and you cheat on me and then it, it, I could never suspect you because it seems like you don't have enough time. But then if you want to cheat on somebody, you find the ways. I mean, you know that. I know that. Like, it's not... I, I think I don't think I know that, Alex. Yeah, I don't well, think I, I don't think it's actually possible. And I'm not saying that to alleviate any suspicion. I'm just saying well, I'm not. I'm not suspicious of you. Well, I don't now. know what you're saying here. Well, I'm just saying not anymore. But like, it has been something that historically I uh, has been an insecurity of mine, right? Mm-hmm. But as a person who has cheated in the past, and this is why I'm saying you could probably know it. it's like if you want to cheat on somebody. You just, you make, you cheat on them. Like, it's it's always possible to do. You know what I mean? Hmm. Maybe for you it's a little easier. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'd have to get some hair gel and buy no. some new clothes. Oh, people don't cheat with, like, random people. It's usually with somebody you know or whatever. Oh, you know okay. what I mean? I feel like you could go on the subway and just point at somebody. I don't know. I feels <laughs> it feels like it's easier, but maybe I don't know. I'm not. You're the expert. I don't know. Anyway, wait, wait, wait. What led us to this? We're talking about your insecurities for 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and furthermore, split ends. Okay. Oh, what man. else? What else do you have? Alice? Okay. So that's how I overcome them, right? I face them. I try to accept them, but I try to challenge myself to get over them, even in little steps. Anyhow, I'm feeling very secure in our relationship right now, Shane. Clearly, I just want you yes. to know that. I love you very much. Love you too. Ladies, he's a hunk of a man and he makes me feel secure. Putting a word out for you in case I die early, Shane. All right. But I looked it up how you might be able to, uh, you know, get over insecurities. First, affirm your value. And I don't think that has to be in like a meditative way or anything like that. I think it's just looking and saying, okay, what do I like at myself? What am I good at? And finding those things. Next, embrace what you're not good at. I think that's great advice. I think that's so important. Reflect on what is good and what you like about yourself. Stop allowing yourself to think that you're, quote unquote, an insecure person. And I think that's huge. Yeah, if that's you, a good one. Right? Like if you think, oh, like it's just part of my personality. I'm insecure. You're just giving yourself permission to not get over it. But like be uncomfortable with it. Try to not be an insecure person. Try to, you know, challenge your bravery in different ways. But what do you think? What would you add to that? My can I talk about my insecurities at yeah. all? Or yeah, you know? <laughs> I want you to talk about that for the next twenty five. No, uh, for me, a big thing besides looks, and yeah, I'm very insecure about that. But for me, a big thing that plagues me is I always feel unintelligent, and I always feel like I can't be social with people right? because small talk for me is borderline impossible. So leaving the house is a very scary thing for me. The world is a scary place. Going into a like Shoppers Drug Mart is Mm. a little intimidating for me. I bought tampons today. And (laughs) although I'm cool with buying tampons, I don't care. 
the conversation that could go along with that, the inevitable small talk, a little joke about it, that I'm not humiliated by. I'm just scared I won't have the thing to say that is in line with normal social practices. And for me, I feel like I'm good at having a deep conversation, having a real conversation with someone. But if if you can't break through that ice, like if I go to a party, I've had gone to events and not talked to anyone Mm -hmm. for five, six hours. It's tough. Um, And... Yeah, it's just social value. I always feel like I have low social value. It's hard for me to look people in the eye and unintelligent and can't talk about politics or certain things. Like there's certain things that I have to avoid entirely. I can't even touch them because I don't know anything about geography, history, politics, (laughs) English. A party where people are talking about geography. Well. Things come up. I know. I the, know. It, yeah. Geography comes up a lot. And if you know nothing about anything, <laughs> you really <laughs> notice it. But it, it, that, again, it's part of the, Norm MacDonald was great because he too was he was comfortable admitting he knew nothing about certain topics mm. and uh, politics was one of them. And I loved how easily he could just say, yeah, I know nothing about this. I, I don't know at all. Like. People thought I liked George Bush because I liked him as a I shook his hand and got a photo, but I didn't even know what to not yeah. like about him. And I'm trying to have a little bit more norm in my life where I can embrace it and not have my insecurities be so much a part of my personality. Mm-hmm. Because I do feel like in a way I've identified with this neuroses or this neurotic behavior. Yeah. And it's almost like I revel in it in some way. Well, it, it definitely is an aspect of your personality and like you will be the first person to bring it up, right? Because, yeah, because I don't want to be called out on it in a humiliating way. But I think I could own it in a, I don't know, confident way. Yeah. But yeah, that, I think that was, was great advice that you were saying about not uh, concentrating on it so much. Yeah. What was the, what was the yeah, stop allowing yourself to think that you're an insecure person. So stop mm-hmm. allowing yourself to think that you're not good in social situations. Stop allowing yourself to think that you're a neurotic person. Other people are going to see you as a neurotic person or whatever. Yeah, I'd like to embrace the silence maybe more when I'm out. And yeah. I don't oh, my know. God. It's hard, though. <laughs> 100%. But it's hard for everybody, even if you're good socially. And I, I just think that people who think they're terrible socially – forget that they think that they're the only ones that are ever awkward or ever feel awkward or so it weighs upon them if they say something the wrong thing but that's everybody like if it, me and i love talking to people i think about it for days and i'll lose sleep over it if i think i said like the most minute thing wrong to somebody you're such a lovable goofball though well you can be too shane the knowledge of non-knowledge is power that's a callback I, there's there's room for that quote every single day, I tell you. Is is there anything else? That's all. Hey, that's it. That's all. As we, I'm stealing what Mike Beerman always <laughs> says at the end of Michael Bunch. I don't know why. But thanks for listening to this podcast. We really do appreciate it. Give us a five-star rating or not. Whatevs. Give Thank, us five-star. Yeah, thanks for listening to This, this Family, Family Tree, Tree Podcast. Podcast. Episode 103.